So, life is good, Russ. It's a beautiful day. Another good uh, music listening week. What do you think? Well, Mike, this is uh, kind of like a summer preview for us here. It was yeah. 32 degrees centigrade. That's what, 86, 87? Yeah, it was dry, uh, unusually. And, and dry as a bone. Which, which is unusual. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. unusual for uh, Western Japan. Uh, so it was actually uh, kind of enjoyable uh, right. to get in the shade, and it was not too bad. You know, we don't have many more days like this before we get the rainy season, which will be a month of cooler but very spongy weather. Well, I wouldn't even say cooler weather. It kind of gets humid. Yeah. And it's just, it's still, it's not cool at all. It's just kind of this hot, yeah, weird it air. Feel and it's just sweat yeah. and feel terrible all the time. Some but, mornings you, know. you can go outside and it'll be, you know, 27 or 28 degrees centigrade and 96 or 97% humidity. Yeah, and it's just horrible. Just, anyway. You'll stick to any surface that you touch. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, that's what we got to look forward to. That will be good music listening. Uh, That'll weather. be good music listening weather, that's for sure. Yeah. yeah. And we got a lot of good music coming up, including uh, today. I mean, I'm looking at my list too. It's growing. There's a lot of uh, good stuff mm-hmm. coming, yep. or at least stuff that I want to hear. I don't know if it's going to be good yet, but it looks um, like it's going to, you know, really be good. Well, a lot of stuff comes out in May, I think. Yeah. May and October seem to be the two big months, May and October. Yeah. May 20th, May 27th, there was a huge list of jazz releases. And so um, I won't be able to, you know, get to all of them anytime soon. But maybe during that rainy season, we can sort out a number of things uh, to get on the show here. Right. I want to say something, by the way, about jazz. You were sort of talking about this too. Um, in the U.S., there are we we keep hearing about the same few artists really again and again mm-hmm. in the jazz press, and yet there are just loads of jazz recordings coming out, like from all over the world, including the U.S., that we don't really um, hear about. And uh, I think it's the got to be the mission of this podcast to make people aware of those as well as what uh, what's being pushed by the media, let's say. That's what I've the mainstream tried to media. Do. Yeah, I mean, I could pick up some bigger names, but anyone who's interested in the music is going to see these same names on all the sites and mm. recommendations. And there are, people are already aware of those names, but there's so much good stuff. Well, j- people who listen to jazz yeah, are. I mean, other people aren't, yeah. But then again, people who don't listen to jazz aren't going to read the jazz press either. Yeah. So <laughs> it's but sort of a... There's a whole you know, list of great stuff that comes out every week that will never get recognized anywhere mm-hmm. uh, written up. In, certainly not in the U.S. because it's you know foreign jazz, but even U.S. jazz, uh, a whole level of you know top shelf players just who don't get the press. And so nice. I, I like to focus on those players. Of course, there are a lot of the big name players who I enjoy myself too. But every week I want to include at least you know something in there that probably no one else would have noticed unless they were you know digging through things like I do to find it. And uh, yeah, that's right. The, kind of one of the big enjoyments for me uh, in doing the research that we do to get things for the show. Yeah, I feel like in classical music, if you remember, I remember I was in co- when I was in college in the 1980s, a lot of uh, minor labels um, started sort of um, signing all these sort of like alternative bands, punk bands and stuff like that. And you'd be listening to 
the cooler bands were always on these um right. smaller obscure labels because the major labels just didn't get it you know and yeah. that's sort of there's something like that happening in well, not happening, but has been like that in classical music for a while. There are a lot of uh, smaller labels that have some pretty great artists on them that yeah. uh, put out some really fantastic um, recordings. And uh, the big labels are kind of up there with them, I think. It's all—it's—it's it's just yeah. this kind of level playing field, if you like, except that the bigger labels, of course, have more promotion. But the, yeah. the music is kind of uniformly good throughout. You know, it's, mm. it's um, pretty amazing. So I've really been enjoying myself over the the last oh say 10 15 years well really 20 years but uh, you know <laughs> but it's still it just keeps going it's really great there's a lot of really interesting new stuff coming out too and researchers keep researching so uh, new things are coming out yeah well that's um how this whole idea for the podcast got started uh right. all of our listeners if you don't know by now you're listening to adult music the podcast with music for the mature mind this is episode 65 and uh this is uh, Russ here and Mike over there, and we've been uh, swapping musical recordings and ideas for more than 20 years now, um, yeah. back when we used to just um, hand off CDs to each other and say, hey, check this out, check that out, lots of classical Right, and we worked jazz. on different days. We had to leave them in each yeah. other's mailbox and stuff yeah. like that, yeah. But um, now, fun. through the wonders of this internet technology, we can listen to almost everything uh, through streaming and uh, we can talk to each other online and share everything with uh, listeners around the world. So I, I hope that uh, there's people out there who are interested in hearing uh, this music that's maybe not easy to find. And then even if they don't have time to listen to our whole podcast, they check our list every week and mm, the playlist and the things there. And uh, yeah, we can help spread some of these artists in uh, all different genres who deserve to be heard. Uh, so regarding that, we're going to talk about uh, six recordings tonight, like we do every yeah. week. And mm -hmm. uh, for any new listeners or old listeners, just uh, to let you know, uh, there's links for everything to Spotify and Apple uh, in the episode description. And also at the top of the description, there's a link with all of the recordings in one single playlist that's on our preferred streaming network, uh, Deezer, or platform that is. Uh, you can also check out the podcast there. Uh, look us up, username Adult Music Podcast. You can get the podcasts and the playlist. Uh, now, if you don't see the full description or the links are not active on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, just come over to our host site, Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and you can listen to the podcast there as well, but all the links and uh, information is easy to find. Now, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, please follow, subscribe, um, whatever app or platform you prefer to listen to us on. If you take a moment, give us a ranking, uh, write a review. That helps us get listed in the browsing category recommendations. We've been up there the past few weeks in uh, Apple and Podbean. So I think we've gotten some new listeners there. And we're on uh, a few more platforms, as we mentioned in the previous weeks, uh, Samsung and iHeartRadio. So we've got a few new listeners through there. Uh, also, you can check us out on Facebook. Uh, we've got a page there We're uploading more videos and uh, additional content there somewhat humorous or <laughs> additional things so uh, check yeah, that I haven't out. been posting my stuff enough I gotta get yeah. get going with the classical end I'll of refer that. to one when we get to it uh, tonight uh, there's yeah. an amazing oh we need a website we have to get a website soon because yeah, we we're growing we're about ready for one yeah. 
Anyway, check out those extras on Facebook and uh, leave a comment if you like. And if you want to get in touch with us uh, directly, any questions or comments, we'd be happy to uh, hear from you and reply. Uh, our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Yeah, and do please write to we, we We're gaining listeners, but we're not really gaining um, uh, messages. We'd like to hear from the listeners and see what you think and what you want to hear, if you want us to do anything, if you want us to change anything, if you... If, <laughs> If, if you think I sh- if you think I should be thrown off the podcast, you know you can let us know. But I'm not going anywhere. So there you go. We get a lot of uh, requests from promotion agencies. You know, please listen to this and please yeah. review that. But uh, it would be nice to hear more from listeners. So yeah, th- those are kind of those are interesting. They they tell yeah tell us listeners what you want to hear. The promotion agencies are you know they're trying to promote their music and it's usually not so interesting it's like they don't it's not that it's not interesting it's not what we do basically our they're not really kind of sending us music that we would cover on the podcast let's say i have to say that the flowery descriptions they write about some of this music is quite amusing (laughs) yeah i mean i get it they they need to get their stuff out there but uh of course yeah it's not really what we're listening to on the podcast they're just kind of just sending it without listening i guess you know they probably oh. just send it out to all everybody. Yeah. At least they know. write to us. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, just as long as they, you know, as long as they don't send us a new album, Kenny G with a tabla player. That would be the... <laughs> yeah. He, he's actually done an album like that. Maybe he'll make a Kwanzaa album this year. <laughs> this year? The Kenny G? I don't know. <laughs> That'd be horrible. Seems like he'll do anything to sell records. But Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah. you know, um, speaking mm. of Kenny G, um, once when I met um, Nick Brignola, uh, the great baritone mm. sax player who was from Troy, New York, mm. used to see him all the time uh, when I was back uh, upstate where I'm from. And uh, <laughs> once when I went to his concert, he picked up his soprano sax and some kid in the audience said, Kenny G, Kenny G. And he said, uh, you know, yeah, you're right, kid. Kenny G owns one of these. He says, but I play it. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? The old, um, there was a podcast, um, there was a jazz podcast that did a whole, oh, they, who was it? It was, it was Nate Chenin was on it. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they did jazz a whole United, episode yeah. <laughs> on how they didn't yeah. like Kenny G. <laughs> it was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, we're going to have a lot of sacks tonight, but we've got some uh, other interesting stuff to, uh, go through first yeah well we're gonna do the we'll do the classical first we go we generally go in the uh, order that the works were um written more or less so jazz generally is the 20th and 21st century we're doing all new recordings so a lot of those recordings are brand new and mm. those compositions as well but uh going back into the past here i just gave this whole talk about how you know, there are these new labels and they're discovering all these new composers and, and going with that, our first uh, <laughs> our first album tonight is going to be Mozart, yeah, of a course. composer yeah. everybody knows. Right. <laughs> and in fact, this week and next week too, because I've got two uh, piano concerto albums that I wanted to talk about. Um, this week, we're doing uh, Piano Concerto's Volume 6 mm. by Jean Eflam Bavouze. And this is a pianist that both of us really like a lot. Ever the Golden since we Touch. Heard his- yeah, yeah, the Golden Touch, and he did this fantastic uh, Prokofiev um, 
Piano Concerto's record back in 2013, 14? Mm-hmm. I think it was 2013, yeah. uh, which I left in your box, as you said at the beginning, when we yeah. were doing that. And that uh, changed our uh, perception of uh, what the Prokofiev Piano Concertos would sound like. Yeah, we really were used did. to the uh, Ashkenazi recordings. Yeah, yeah it was a completely different atmosphere on that. Yeah, yeah, they're, I st- still highly recommend it. I still have those in my... Uh, my uh, iPod Touch. Yes, I have an iPod Touch, even though they don't make them anymore. You know, he, um, of course, he's great on French works, of course, but yeah. uh, that sort of light and amazing touch that he has seems to work on everything. I'm, I've enjoyed his Haydn recordings uh, a lot, and uh, these Mozart ones are great as well. It's light, but uh, impactful when it needs to be. And right. uh, yeah, it just seems to bring a lot of. Uh, energy and class to anything that uh, he records and this was no exception yeah so let's go through this volume six now the thing is i was kind of holding off doing this because like ah, it's the sixth volume he's going to record all the piano concertos but um um leaf of Anne's Ness um just put out his uh mozart momentum 1786 album this year and we're going to talk about that next week but uh, he's re- he records one of the same piano concertos. Uh, I think it's number 23. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to listen to them both. So I thought we'd do this one too. Because we, we both like this pianist a lot. And he's now in this project. He's also doing a, a set of like Haydn piano sonatas recordings. that mm-hmm. You think he's up to volume 10 of that. And they're all pretty spectacular too. All right. So anyway, on this one, he is, a, he is accompanied by the Manchester Camerata. Conducted by, oh man, I hope I say this right, Gabor Tokach Naj. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. Uh, I didn't, I, I actually am imitating the way someone else said it. I didn't actually try Is to look it Is that Naj? I think like, it's pronounced Naj. Looks like Nagy. But it looks like Nagy. Anyway. <laughs> but uh, I heard somebody said Naj, so I'm going with okay. that. Tokach, I remember from the Tokach Quartet, T-A-K-A right. with an accent, C-S. Okay, and this is on the Chandos label. Um, all right. So anyway, this starts off. Now, part of the appeal of this is the uh, pl- is having a conductor. I think this. Mm. I think it's a, this is a weakness of the Anzanes recordings. But we'll get to that next week. Let's just talk about this one. Um, you have a conductor that's sort of uh, thinking about the the tempo and the flexibility of the uh, phrases, and he's, he can concentrate on that while the pianist just focuses on the piano. A lot of pianists like to do it the way Mozart did it. And you're conducting from the piano. Um, and there's not much conducting that really needs to be done in Mozart, to be honest, because mm. orchestra, modern orchestras can play this in their sleep now because they, they play it all through school and, you know, things like that. So the style is really um, embedded in their education, in their minds, this whole style. Anyway, the uh, the disc opens with um, the overture to Der Schauspiel Director uh, in C major, uh, K486. Uh, written in 1786. Okay, this is um, the this is the orchestra only. So um, Bavuze is not on this. So it's sort of an intro to the piano concertos, and we get an idea of what we're going to hear from the orchestra, which is nice. It's a cl- nice, clear, beautiful sound on the opening timpani hits. They impact well. I had my uh, subwoofer on, and it felt really <laughs> good. Uh, the quiet string parts that follow come out really clearly too. This is a quietly recorded album and needs a boost from the volume knob. So you won't mm. want to give that a boost. Uh, lovely shaping of the phrases by 
Tokach Naj. He's a bit restrained in energy in this, not pushing the rushing lines. I like this kind of performance, clear and refined, but I prefer more energy, really. Okay, but I have no problem with this. Everything is balanced, and there's nothing to complain about. Uh, I'm really enjoying the clarity of the recording. Um, and the work is engaging, of course. Um, Mozart, <laughs> all of Mozart's art, music is. And it's also fairly brief. It's only about uh, four minutes long. Okay, we get into Piano Concerto number 22 in E-flat major, uh, K482 of 1785. This one also appeared on last year's Anzines album. Um, and uh, in this particular one, we have the condensers by um, Bavuze himself, uh, written after condensers by uh, Johann Nepomuk Hummel, who was a student of Mozart and Beethoven's, and he was like a big star at the time, touted by Beethoven to become one of the big composers of his day, and he was. And then he was forgotten after he died. But his music <laughs> is very good, okay? So he's worth uh, investigating. Um, it's a lot of his music's being uh, recorded now, which is great. Hmm. Okay. So we have here the first movement, Allegro. Same lovely sound quality in this. And I love the quality with which the wind instruments came out in the quieter passages after the opening timpani we have the same kind of opening with the timpani as we did in the overture in this in this piano concerto and they register well the transition to the second slower theme is well taken tension builds to the cadence are well taken we really feel that building up um they're not built up as much as they can be again this is a bit of a restrained performance it's more elegant than exciting all right so think about that bavuze's entry at uh the two minute and 18 second mark actually caught this one usually when i give you these times they're approximate because i look back and say oh that was great and i it's already gone i don't i don't rewind um but this one actually happens at two minutes 18 seconds it's quiet and in line with the pianos of the day even though he's using a full-size modern piano he's got this very light touch very appealing mm. uh, the recording is fairly dry with enough room sound to allow it to breathe and this allows us to hear detail in Bavuze's piano playing. It's recorded at a bit of a distance, given the lightness of attack. Um, it could have been closer, but um, he fits into the sound, overall sound picture really well. Um, everything here is well judged. Um, there's a turn to a darker key at 3 minutes and 46 seconds or so, and it registers via an accent by the orchestra. I really like when um, conductors do that. They alert you to a change by some kind of... Um, you know, thing they do. <laughs> I like Bavuze's sudden slowing to introduce the last phrase before the exposition ending cadence around the 4 minute and 30 second mark. Uh, the cadence actually comes at 5 minutes and 15 seconds and continues on from there into additional material that leads to a more solid cadence at 5 minutes and 49 seconds. And still the orchestra won't let it go. A lot of harmonic smoke and mirrors here. Um, it must have delighted or infuriated audiences of the day <laughs> whatever their temperament was. And the point I want to make here is that th in this particular performance, you notice these um, these mm. cadences that release a little tension or these avoided cadences, they really come out. And that happens because of the phrasing, because of the timing, because of the tempo, a lot of things. Yeah. Um, so that's really fantastic. You're getting a sense of the, the shape of the work. All right. And that's always um, welcome. I like here that the uh, in the first yeah. movement, especially the tempo is not too fast, mm -hmm. and um, it allows for a lot of these extra emphasis on other 
elements because um, it, it just seems a bit more relaxed for an Allegro. But yeah. um, it, there's time f for those fast things later. But here, a slightly uh, restrained tempo allows for other extra expression in other areas, yeah. like you mentioned. There's always a reason for the, this choice. And I think here they want the detail to register. So when you mm -hmm. go for a slower tempo, you're going to get a lot more detail and a lot more. Uh, you could kind of squeeze out the emotion, you know, a little bit more like it's a like it's an orange and you're squeezing out that juice. You know, you can kind of you know, work hard on that. Anyway, the orchestra gets their own cadences at uh, 6 minutes and 14 seconds, 6 minutes and 23 seconds. And then we go to the development section. Uh, the piano goes into some odd uh, key areas for the time, that is, um, during the development uh, before emerging into something sunny and major at around the 7 minute and 20 second mark. And then uh, at 7 minutes and 48 seconds, we're back to the opening tippity hits and the recapitulation of the opening material starts. Uh, the orchestra and conductor by this point have gained some confidence and the bridge into the second theme is pretty exciting. Not the same as it was in the beginning. Uh, it leans into the forward movement a bit of the work a bit. Uh, the second theme is now played in the tonic key. It's lovely. And you can hear that at 9 minutes and 20 seconds. Full of classical era charm, taken idiomatically here. Um, Bavuze's cadenza starts at around uh, the 10 minute and 50 second mark. It starts with a long scalar run, then after the 11th minute goes into melodic material, played with a bit of uh, romantic era retards slowing down. It's fairly ornate for a classical cadenza, probably Hummel's contribution. He was um, in Beethoven's era. Uh, there's good virtuosity in it, though. It's a pretty busy cadenza, not much room left for a pause, and it ends with a crash into the closing material. And the orchestra has gained momentum at this point, so they sound really uh, exciting at the end. Okay, we get into the second movement of this three-movement work. Um, most concerti have three movements. This is the, the slow movement, Andante, and it starts solemnly in the strings with uh, a forlorn theme broken into short phrases. Again, uh, harmonic games are played before the piano comes in at 1 minute and 35 seconds. There are a lot of teasing approaches to a cadence that are then backed away from until we finally hear the end of the opening theme before the piano comes in. Here the piano has a lot of space and plays quietly with lovely phrasing from Bavuze. You know, what, what do we expect? He's, he's always really good at this. Mm. He's one of my favorite pianists currently out there. One of our favorite pianists, yeah. I would say. Yeah. The orchestra plays some uh, new material, morphing it into something with a little cheer in it. I like the repeating bassoon note at around the uh, 3 minutes and 45 second note. Uh, the bassoon note at the 3 minute and 45 second mark in the background as the winds play the melody. Piano is back and more active at 4 minutes and 10 seconds. Bavuze is taking a slightly faster tempo here, and it's a good move. It gives the piece a sense of urgency to get somewhere. Um, the orchestra comes back with more material at 5 minutes and 30 seconds, mostly winds again. And the tempo is fairly fast, so we're not getting a lot of emotion wrung out here. This is a funny thing. When you're playing a slow movement and it's a little fast, it kind of, it's it's sort of like the emotion is hide, is being hidden a little bit. That, that often happens. Uh, notice that when you listen. It's pretty interesting. Um, it's more, it's got more of a light glow of uh, gorgeous melody to it. At 6 minutes and 18 seconds, something more dramatic at higher volume comes out of the orchestra, but the piano responds quietly and resignedly, bringing the line to a climax. 
So no drama for this pianist. He's had enough <laughs> for this, not the pianist, <laughs> the piano line. Uh, the orchestra continues with its dramatic statements and climaxes the material at 7 minutes and 10 seconds. We continue with the piano playing quietly in response. Um, at 8 minutes and 14 seconds, the orchestra quietens down. It's almost as though the piano is saying, no more drama. <laughs> There's... There are some shorter phrases ending in a cadence, and the honking bassoon bass line after 8 minutes and 30 seconds is ear-catching. All right. Third movement. Allegro. And other things. There's also a cadenza in this one, also by Bavouzet, after Hummel. This uh, movement has a dancing pastoral rondo theme. Uh, ro- pastoral means it sounds like a country dance, so it's very square and it's um, melodic lines and things like that. It you know you, it's predictable. Um, it, it's introduced at a perfectly judged tempo and volume by the piano. It grows boisterous on its orchestra repeat. Again, we get some cadential teases and delightful phrasing details drawn out by the orchestra. And we get our first departure from the theme at a minute and twenty-five seconds. Remember, a rondo, you go away from the theme and you come back. I think Robert Greenberg explained it as hearing the rondo theme is like being at home. Then you go to the store and you go back home. <laughs> That's what a rondo's <laughs> like. It's like little. It's quiet and features hesitant lines from the piano, which develop into long scalar figures featuring brilliant sparkle from Bavouzet. Another tease. We expect to hear the rondo theme after the cadence at 2 minutes and 28 seconds, but instead we get a new, more active section than the previous. That Mozart is always, uh, he's always teasing us. In his music, the orchestra and Bavuze are good at making these surprises register, or making the material register as a surprise. Because after all, we know what's coming since we've heard these works so many times. Mozart's music is really well known. The rondo theme comes back at three minutes and thirty-two seconds. At four minutes and forty-eight seconds, we get a serenade-type theme from the orchestra, which the piano follows by repeating it in its own way, at once austere, then with some embellishments. The melody melts in the evening air. The piano starts a pacing line after 6 minutes and 30 seconds, gets a cadenza-like approach to the rondo theme at 7 minutes and 10 seconds, which he reaches after uh, he reaches the cadenza after the 7 minute and 20 second mark. The piano gets a lot of impressive scale work in this section. Um, Bavuze via Hummel. Um, oh, the cadenza comes at 9 minutes and 15 seconds. Bavuze via Hummel uses the rondo theme to launch into various variations on the material in different keys. And Bavuze is absolutely charming in this last movement. He comes out of the cadenza at around 10 minutes and 40 seconds, playing the rondo theme one more time before we get to what we think is the final cadence, which we hit, and the piano extends the movement a bit with the last quiet statement, and then the orchestra plays the final cadence. Mm. So, nice um, performance, full of surprises, and the... uh, the orchestra and the pianist make those register. This is a really great performance of this work. Yeah, I was impressed by his uh, control and dynamics, varying the dynamics throughout the performance. And so effortlessly, everything is so fluid and light when he plays. Uh, it's amazing. And like I say, even though we've heard these works before, they're very good at making these things surprising. And I really like right. the false ending. Uh, right. At the end here, you think, oh, that's it. And no, it's not. Uh, and then you get yeah. that final big orchestral finish there. So, uh, yeah, just a completely enjoyable. And f- you feel like you're hearing it for the first time uh, yeah. in this performance. 
Yeah, all the Mozart's piano concertos, he wrote 27 of them, or actually less, but um, some of them are attributed to Mozart, I think. But um, they're all different. And this particular one, you got to wonder what the circumstances were for its first performance, because there are a lot of teasing parts mm-hmm. in it. He's really maybe teasing the pianist in the audience or things like that. It's, yeah. it's it's rather fun. Some of them are very serious, but not not that one. This one, the next one, and the last one on this album is Piano Concerto Number 23 in A Major, K488, okay? And this cadenza is by Mozart himself. All right, the first movement has an amiable theme from the orchestra. And uh, they start this one with more excitement than they did the previous one. The the previous one sort of gained in confidence and excitement as it went. It started Mm. a bit sort of decorous and, you know, sort of, um, you know, leisurely. But this one starts out really less restrained than before. Um, Still decorous, though. It has the right tempo and a bit of a forward kind of lean to it, so it feels like it really wants to get somewhere. Uh, The piano's entry is at uh, the two-minute mark and is beautifully taken at a genteel volume by Bavouze. We've come to expect no less from him after hearing the five previous discs in this um, series. I've heard them all. Uh, He slows down the second theme a bit at uh, three minutes and giving it a bit of a severe marching quality, which the orchestra then softens the contours of. I like the tempo this movement is traveling at. It's rather brisk and engaging for that reason. The development section features a lot of impressive scale work from the piano, and we get back to the recap, the recapitulation, after the sixth minute. The recapitulation is when the opening material repeats in a sonata movement. Interestingly, when the piano gets the second theme here in the tonic key, he softens its contours from the more march-like edges he gave it the first time we heard it in the exposition. So he's actually kind of changed his approach to even playing it, um, which is uh, I found really fascinating. Mm. Uh, A lot of variety here. The cadenza comes at the nine-minute mark about, and this is a familiar one, uh, right in keeping with the tone of the movement. It's familiar because every other recording I've heard of this because there's a cadence by Mozart in existence for this work, everybody uses it. Hmm. And uh, Bavuze stretches certain phrases interestingly, interestingly by providing brief retards and uh, hesitations and giving uh, certain bass notes extra weight. He hands off to the orchestra at the 10 minute and 17 second mark, and they bring the movement to an amiable ending with a quiet, unaccented cadence at the end. The Adagio movement, um, movement two. By the way, before I go into this, someone wrote to me this week and was asking about uh, to rec- He had heard the the Mahler uh, Adagio from Symphony Five, very famous, very beautiful work, and he wanted to know if I could recommend any other Adagios to him. <laughs> it's kind of a funny. It's kind of a funny question. Yeah. There are works like that that have that kind of glimmer, that string glimmer that Mahler gives there, but. Adagio, it's not really a form; it's a speed. Yeah. So, yeah. so of course, mm. this Adagio sounds nothing like the Mahler. It just means <laughs> that's slow. Okay. Anyway, I I did recommend some, you know, Bruckner, other Mahler, mm. and uh, some of the late Beethoven string quartets to him. So, we'll see if he's listening to those next time I talk to him. Okay. Anyway. For this adagio, Bavuze plays the theme solo at the beginning. His shaping of it is interesting. He's giving weight to the downbeat, as you should, but he sort of makes the theme sound a little crooked in doing so. 
The orchestra comes in and gives a lot of slowly arpeggiated string atmosphere, with strings playing the theme over the rolling accompaniment. The piano's music is slow and thoughtful, and Bavuze phrases deliberately as if trying to communicate a mind pondering something. So he's kind of like he's kind of wandering through the woods trying to work out this issue that he has. So I'm getting that feeling from his piano playing here. I like the winds at around uh, 2 minutes and 36 seconds. Great recorded sound. Uh, they're really The quality of their tones comes out. There's a nice false cadence at around the 4 minute and 20 second mark. And afterwards, Bavuze phrases with some interesting and engaging accents. There's a lot of melancholy and darkness in a wandering, lost in the woods at night kind of way uh, in this movement. Mm. And the piece is brought to a quiet, full close at the end. Then we get the third movement, Allegro Asai, an active theme that will turn out to be a rondo, instantly memorable, perfect for a rondo. This is not a pastoral rondo. It's pretty much a musical figure, very catchy and very uh, excitable. Uh, not quite a melody. It's more of a figure. It's got uh, impressive quick bassoon lines in the first minute. I really enjoyed mm-hmm. that, and they're well caught here. Always notice the bassoon when the bassoon gets a solo like that. They're hard to do, and a lot of these are used for uh, um, these. These passages are used for uh, bassoon auditions mm. <laughs> for Orchestra orchestras. Excerpts, yeah, yeah. Uh, the the famous one is from uh, Beethoven's Fourth Symphony, the Fourth Movement. There's a big solo for the bassoon in that, and they often make. Uh, Bassoon players play that when they're auditioning. All right, we get the theme back at uh, 2 minute 48 seconds. It's a rondo, and we're off to the more upbeat second departure from the theme after this. Um, at this point, the piano and the ensemble are playing off each other exceptionally well at high speed. It feels secure and enjoyable. There's a really uh, intriguing darkening of key to the minor at 4 minutes and 30 seconds or so. Very sudden, unexpected, like a cloud is covering our sunny day. Um, and then I could swear that the theme at five minutes and fifty seconds is going to launch into Dixie. Dun 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 dun. Yeah, but it doesn't continue in that melody. It always reminds me of Dixie when I hear that. Listen at five minutes and fifty seconds into the third movement of this is Piano Concerto Number Twenty Three. In this recording, the way it's played here, actually, in the I've already heard the Ansnes recording too, and it's it just always reminds me of that. At 6 minutes and 12 seconds, we get the last statement of the Rondo theme. Excellent build-up to the final cadence, leaving us feeling exhilarated when it arrives. So this is uh, these are refined performances with a bit of amusing detail drawn out. I thought as a whole that uh, Concerto 24 came across more charmingly than 23, but they both have uh, enormous charms. Uh, we're big fans of Bavuze, as I've said, and he comes across in sparkling form here. Uh, this album is just over an hour long, and that hour went by fast. I actually mm-hmm. listened to this um, after work one day, and I was like, oh, God, so it's, it's going to end. And, you know, I'm tired. But man, I, I, I couldn't understand how the time went by so fast. This was such a good recording. The playing is engaging. The recorded sound warm and comforting. Beautiful. Yet another engaging release in this series. I say, collect them all. Yeah, really good. Uh, I described the piano in this this uh, second uh, concerto, 23, as like bubbling. It, it sort of just seems to be, f- the notes are floating out from Bavose, uh mm. on the keyboard, uh, just like popping out uh, with all this exuberance. Lots of nice momentum, 
uh, everything sounds precise, never sounds tired, you know, which right. can happen with these works that have been gone through so many times. Uh, it sounds fresh. Uh, it's always amazing to me. You get these works that these, these warhorse works that yeah. can come out sounding fresh. A lot of young players are able to put that kind of enthusiasm and yeah. sort of new insight into them. Here, uh, it's a great recording too, as we usually get from Shandos, the Orchestra and piano are perfectly balanced. Everything sounds just right. Uh, nothing distracting in the sonics. Uh, enthusiastic performances. Excellent sound overall. And Bavuze is a name, you know, deserves all that recognition because he's really amazing. Uh, he never, I've never heard anything that disappointed me uh, from him. Right. Me neither. I tend to collect uh, his um, recordings as they yeah. come out, no matter what he's playing. I haven't heard one that wasn't impressive yet. And he does, you know, his uh, signature is that lightness of touch and uh, fleetness. But that's applicable across, you know, various eras and uh, types of playing. And it really works well on Mozart. The speed and, as I said, the dynamic variety he gets and the subtlety of accents uh, just comes across really impressive on these Mozart uh, works so highly recommended for uh, any fans of Mozart or uh, piano in general. Yeah, uh, piano classical piano fans, keep that name in mind. Jean Eflam Bavouzet. Write it down. Do a search on your, um, you know, put them into your search engine for your um, streaming service, and uh, guarantee you won't be disappointed. Yeah, whatever he does when he plays Ravel, when he plays Haydn, Mozart, uh, Prokofiev. He recently recorded also the complete Beethoven sonatas too, and those were oh, really the interesting are too. Good too. Yeah, because he gave them a, sort of a lower, a quieter sort of um, more austere kind of feel than mm -hmm. you usually get. Like he kind of took the romantic feel away from them a bit. Yeah, and uh, it was really intriguing. He kind of sort of reinvented those too. I, I enjoyed listening to those as well. Yeah, he's um, you know a giant of uh, classical piano, deservedly yeah. so. Contemporary classical piano, let's say. Yeah, yeah, he's one of the best out there. All right, onwards to another recording on the Chandos label. Uh, Metamorphosin by the uh, Symphonia of London, conducted by John Wilson. Now, we um, talked about uh, this ensemble just a few episodes ago. Um, what was it? <laughs> it was... Um, oh, what was oh I can't remember. Anyway. This is an all-strang thing. Here. This one's all There's, strings, though, yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I can't... See, I'm just blanking out on the old episodes now. This happened to be you earlier this, this week. This week. <laughs> yeah, because we were talking about the uh, Joel Ross recording that we talked about a few weeks ago. Somebody asked me, have you ever heard of Joel Ross? I'm like, no, I don't think I've ever heard of him. And yet we talked about yeah, we three weeks that. ago. Yeah. I guess it wasn't I guess, memorable. I just... Yeah, I guess not. And I do remember the jazz that I really like, or the uh, but the classical I tend to remember, um, just off the top of my head. But let me um, see here. Um, I think this one erased the memory of that one. I guess I don't know. So I'm still uh, thinking of the old Respighi one, which was really great. But uh, oh yeah, oh, it was Ravel. It was Ravel, wasn't it? No, was it? Yeah, it was uh, Mamelois. Yeah, okay, I remember now. It was all Ravel. It was Ravel. Laval's, yeah, Mamelois, those uh, those performances. Oh yeah, Maurice Ravel, orchestra right. works, yeah. Right. Okay. Well, here we're, this is a very different sort of program. Thing, yeah. All um, Viennese works from the 20th century, and um, they're all Viennese works um, that look back towards an earlier time. 
two of them, the ones by uh, Richard Strauss, he's uh, his Metamorphosen, which is what the uh, the piece the uh, album is named after, and Eric Wolfgang Korngold's um, work on this album of the Symphonic Serenade, uh, both look back to pre-war Europe. Um, these were both written just after the war ended. And Korngold had gone to the United States and was working in Hollywood during the war, whereas Strauss stayed in Germany during the Nazi period. And uh, I guess he still composed uh, while all this stuff was going on. But uh, once the war was over, they looked back and uh, remembered the uh, the world they once lived in that was now gone. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of that now. People our age have already experienced this because we grew up in a world, remember, without um, the internet. Uh, without mm-hmm. um, smartphones, and especially smartphones. And now it's not just that these things are around, but they've taken over our lives. We just don't live and can't live the same way that we lived before. And when I hear works like these, I mean, the, the war had just destroyed a culture, basically. Um, and um, obviously it was sad for the people who had lived in the culture before the war started, um, who, who were... <laughs> you know, who weren't being, you know, pressed, pushed down by it, let's say. But, um, they, you know, Vienna had this this great musical culture, and now it was just in complete, in complete ruins. So these two composers are looking back to that here. And I relate more just because of the way mm. we live today. You know, I mean, we've already seen a world we grew up in disappear, um, f- yeah. apparently for good. I think they never come back. When I was I listening to this one... Um, mm. Since it's all strings, which yeah. f- for me usually is a turnoff because mm-hmm. I like the full palette of the orchestra. You know, yeah, me I, too. And being a brass player, I I like to hear that. You know, the, the, I'm always waiting for the brass and things. So when I get all strings, <laughs> well, I'm you love thinking, 20th century works. Then. Yeah, <laughs> but so um, the one that struck me here the most, I think, was the Schrecker actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's the earliest one. Uh, yeah, yeah. Even I'm not that familiar with his music, but what I thought is he got the largest sort of palette of different hmm. tones out of the orchestra, oh, I emphasizing see what you mean, yeah. the, the low bass, more kind of uh, pizzicato things moving against other types of more uh, legato phrases so that I got a larger palette of sounds. Uh, the last time we did all strings, I think, was when we heard the Vaughn Williams. That's the fantasy on the theme of Talis, Tal- Thomas Talis. He's talking. That's a great, great piece. Yeah. I really love that. It's a great piece, yeah. which yeah. I felt completely satisfied with only strings uh, in right. the way that that moves. And so I, I liked all of these, but the Shrucker sort of um, impressed me with the versatility of the arrangements, uh, utilizing different techniques of strings and sounds that gave it a bigger breadth of expression, I thought. Yeah, let's go through these. The Richard Strauss work opens the program. I should mention, by the way, this is an SACD. If you have the equipment to play it, you can hear it in all its um, smooth, creamy glory, all those string sounds. Um, Richard Strauss, Metamorphosen, this was written in 1945, just as the war ended, and uh, Germany was in ruins. Okay, now we think of that good, the Nazis were beaten, but he's also thinking about the culture because that's the world he lived in. You know, he wasn't like, he wasn't really involved in uh, Nazi politics. Anyway, this is uh, for 23 solo strings. It's a big orchestra. Uh, 
and he wrote this as sort of a lament for, um, I think it was the destruction of, I might be thinking of Kurt Vonnegut though, Dresden or things like that. But, um, I don't know, these, these beautiful Baroque cities that would just bomb to smithereens in the war, um, and now just wouldn't be there anymore. Um, this is a, it's a, it's a more, a work of mourning, M-O-U-R, it's like you're mourning someone's death or the death of a culture here. Um, the first motif, now, if you want to follow this, it's a 30-minute work and it's through composed. It's the, there's there are no, mm. yeah, there are sections in it, but there are no like indications as to when they um, occur. If you really want to look up the themes and go into this in detail, in Wikipedia actually does a pretty good um, description of it. I, I just kind of, took a look at that but i didn't you know just I, when we do when we listen to these we're really just listening to them i'm not really sort of explaining what's happening in them maybe we should do some videos on youtube about that but um, <laughs> we'll see that'll take time though boy a lot of research a lot of graphics Oof. okay so right away uh, the first motif we hear is uh grief stricken and there's a tritone in it um so that's always a, a bad side in classical music although it was used a lot in uh in the 20th century. Uh, but the direction is upwards and the initial five cellos and double bass invite the other players by making the space. Um, there's a call and response approach among the instruments and this work yearns for a past unencumbered by the destruction the war had brought. So basically he wants to go back to the time he was living in, in his younger days when the culture was intact. Oh, don't we all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> college how i miss it anyway the work alludes uh but never quotes works from the past we hear like allusions to voller wagner i said voller mahler wagner and it does eventually directly quote the funeral march movement from beethoven's third symphony the eroica so that's the, the beginning of the second movement you have to have a good ear to hear it though i'll point out where it is um the eroica by the way is it in c minor or this um particular Section is in C minor, a highly charged key for Beethoven. He used it in the Fifth Symphony, for, rather famously, for the fate theme. Da, 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 da. Okay, but in this uh, case, there's no solace at the end as there is in Beethoven's piece. And uh, let's see. Um, we get the um, devastated harmonies at the beginning. At a minute in, you can hear a hint of the uh, heroic funeral march, which will be played at the end. Half an hour from now, okay, uh, from this point. Uh, funereal, but solidly uh, followable pacing from the ensemble. Good full sound from Chandos on this, by the way. This is a g giant mm. string section, 23 strings, and they're all playing different things. Uh, we get a sense of this uh, stretched out musical line that the late romantic composers like Wagner, Bruckler, Bruckner, and Mahler loved. Uh, the bass pizzicato at the three minute and ten second mark registers loudly, especially if you have a uh, subwoofer set up. Um, by now, the strings have reached a higher register and sound a bit heavenly in their imploring intensity. At three minutes and fifty seconds, there's an implied cadence as a new theme starts in the cello. And I like this. Here we're in the 20th century. We never hear the last note of the cadence. It's sort of implied by the new theme. You know, you kind of mm. sense it rather than hear it. I always like that technique. Mahler did it a lot too. 
Another long breathed section follows, which also rises to higher range and which morphs into yet another section for the cellos at six minutes and 40 seconds. This just goes on like this. There's a lot of detail I could talk about in this, but I think I'm going to uh, go over this quickly. Cadences come and go very quickly. They, we don't linger on any cadences. We're always kind of moving on, sort of like a ghost floating over uh, these ruins. And um, the music gets louder and more excitable from 11 minutes and 30 seconds. Um, we're building towards an agitated big climax here, but we don't get it. It falls away without resolution into another quiet climbing theme that quickly builds in intensity. So we're going to always have this sort of Sisyphean rising and falling sort of um, feeling in this. Um, there's a uh, four note. There's a four single note theme like this. Dun, 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 dun. That reminds me. The notes say that it's like uh, the uh, third movement of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, dun, 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 like a march. But I hear it more as this section in um, Schoenberg's uh, String Sextet, uh, Verklärte Nacht, um, Transfigured Night, where the, just before the uh, the man starts talking, where the more sunny mm. music comes in, where the, the, you hear this, um, the strings go like, mm, mm. Mm, and I kind of hear that as a reference to Transfigure Night, which to me would make sense because that's what he's looking for in this piece. He's looking to transfigure the uh, right. the Vienna that he of the time into the past before the war. Um, so uh, I think that's what that is, except that he doesn't get it, sadly. Um, we have the biggest musical tension built at the 15th minute. With the music at its loudest and most dense yet, it reaches a quickly taking climax, falls away into a busier theme that again starts to build upward. Um, the usual waning of intensity into something forlorn occurs, and by 20 minutes, we're mourning quietly. There's a surprising pause at the 20 minute and 21 second mark. Then a Schoenberg-like outburst, complete with the four single that single note theme, dun 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 dun, around the ensemble, and um, so this is, I'm going to say Schoenberg. I mean his um, more chromatic era, era when he sounded more romantic. This is before his twelve tone music. Mm. Um, the falling notes at 22 minutes, 40 seconds are reminiscent of the beginning of that work too. And by the 26th minute, we're still hearing those textures, which suddenly fall away into a quieter, leaner texture and reach a quiet cadence. The Beethoven uh, funeral march theme from the opening of the second movement of his Eroka Symphony can be heard starting at 26 minutes and 42 seconds in the bass just before the cadence is reached. But it's kind of buried. It's not very obvious because it's under these other higher harmonies it's clearly audible though if you're listening to it in the score at this point um strauss wrote the words in memoriam and the piece ends sadly there nice performance i want to say about the performance it's a bit it's paced a little more quickly than the older recordings i know from uh, Karyon back in the day when i first heard these uh recordings they used to really stretch out the melodies and really draw the emotion out that's not the case with um, today's generation of uh, of um, mm. conductors. They're more interested in the musical line, and I think they shy away from this kind of heavy emotion a little bit. I wonder mm. if it's a generational thing. Um, but anyway, everything is very clearly taken. It's a beautiful recording and a nice um, performance. I think the older 
generation of we're better in this work. That's just all mm-hmm. I'll say. Although this is an excellent uh, performance. Next, we get the Franz Schrecker piece that uh, Russ was just talking about, an intermezzo, and it sounds like that. Um, it was later incorporated into Schrecker's Romantische Suite three years later, and it looks back to Brahms in the matter of uh, Schoenberg's Transfigured Night again. Okay, so that, that mm-hmm. Schoenberg where it keeps coming up. It has shimmering passages and increasingly elastic harmonies. And this is pretty clever programming, I want to say, on uh, John Wilson's part, because this really does act as an intermezzo, and it separates the two big works on this album. Um, It starts with shimmering high strings played in harmony in a gliding 3-4 rhythm. Could be 6-8. I don't know. It's very pretty and lightens the mood from the previous piece, so it's kind of nice to hear here as well. Um, the, the Strauss is very heavy. Um, John Wilson provides the much-needed light touch to put this across. Uh, the strings have an appealing glimmer to them in this piece. Uh, the opening melody is then repeated at a softer volume, richly orchestrated, and we're off to something new and more active at a minute and 48 seconds. I like the dancing rhythm at the three-minute mark. The music quietens, and we get those opening, glimmering strings again just past the four-minute mark. The piece is light and enjoyable and well-programmed here. It lifts the weight that Strauss's work imposed on us. And as Russ said, it's got some pretty interesting uh, orchestration yeah, featuring great strings. arrangement of the strings. Mm. And what I liked about this, too, is it has a uh, kind of breathing, like a breath-like pulse to the movement that goes through. So it, it's sort of, um, how can I say? It ebbs and flows as if it's respirating uh, through hmm. the movement of the piece uh, rather than just sticking with these tempos through. So I found that pulse sort of pulling me into it uh, in an, in another way. Yeah. I don't know if you picked I'll, up on I'll that. I'll have to give that another listen then, yeah. I guess. All right. The last work on this is the other big work, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, Symphonic Serenade in B-flat Major for String Orchestra, written 1947 to 1948. And this is one of a series of works that uh, Korngold addressed, uh, in which Korngold addressed the traditions of his Central European, that is, Viennese, past. Um, He's looking back as well. Um, The first movement is um, labeled Schwebend, which is floating. And... uh, labeled Allegro Moderato Semplice for its tempo. Uh, This is dedicated to Korngold's wife. And uh, this movement begins with an amorous melody from 16 first violins, accompanied by a characteristically divided body of strings for him. He does this a lot. It's very opulent sounding, sort of like those Hollywood scores that he sort of pretty much invented. He... uh, (laughs) That, that Hollywood sound in the old Errol Flynn movies. He wrote those scores and really invented the Hollywood sound. That's really him. Okay, that's his sound. It's not really like he's copying the Hollywood sound. He made the Hollywood sound. Anyway, this doesn't have all the, the full orchestra. It's just strings. So you're not, you're not going to have quite that. Um, this, by the way, begins in D-flat major and finds its way to the home key. And there's a lot of evading the home key in this work, which gives it a lot of tension. And one does wonder if that doesn't have anything biographical to do, where Korngold is staying away from Europe, especially during the war. Um, he was in California at the time, escaping the Nazis. He was Jewish and uh, got work in Hollywood, along with uh, Schoenberg, who also lived in Vienna at the time. Schoenberg didn't write for movies, though, needless to say. 
this has an amiable opening driven by thumping pizzicato bass and brief repeating uh, low string rhythm. It's like a repeating sort of rhythm. Mm. It's light and enjoyable. About the one minute mark, the rhythm and theme gets more aggressive, but then reverts to its floating quality again at a minute and 40 seconds. Back to an aggressive posture at two minutes or so. It's though this floating theme is being interrupted by something more sinister and insistent. So I'm thinking if you... I like reading into... You're not supposed to do this when you listen to music, but I can't help it. I keep thinking that the floating theme might be his memory of Vienna in his youth. And then this more sinister theme would be the 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 war clouds um, coming on. You, you know, that's one thing it could be. But it does have that kind of idea. Like there's a dramatic conflict mm-hmm. interrupting something. Uh, whatever happens, we keep coming back to the opening floating theme. Uh, there's a Viennese longing to this theme especially evident at the end of the movement when elements of the thematic material are played quietly leading to the soft final cadence um the intermezzo the second movement this was really intriguing i like this a lot it's lots of pizzicati in in this the entire opening theme is pizzicati well played and shaped here by the ensemble this sounds tough to achieve uh the melodic line in this because they're doing it with pizzicati, so you have to play it at a certain speed in order to get the sense of line. Um, this section reaches its end at the minute and 26 second mark. Then we get something of a bit more science fiction-like. I kinda, <laughs> it kind of sounded to me like uh, a theremin sort of <laughs> sound in the strings here. As the middle section has the violins playing on the bridges and fingerboards. Um, this ends quickly, and about the minute 50 second mark, we're back to the pizzicati of the opening. The middle section, or it's, I guess it's not a middle section, but the uh, the sci-fi section gets another look at uh, 3 minutes and 15 seconds. And the pizzicato section closes the work. So it's A, B, A, B, A. But in the end, it's not all pizzicati. The instruments are bowed at mm. the end. There's a real wink to this movement. Uh, it's clever and enjoyable, even a bit fascinating. If you hear only one movement of this work, make sure it's this one. It's pretty unique. Third movement, lento religioso. And this is a very sincere sounding movement. Um, It's in D major, like the uh, last movement of Mahler's third symphony. And it kind of reminds me a little bit of that. Um, It starts slowly and meltingly, like uh, that Mahler symphony movement. It moves slowly, but again, the ensemble do well to have the orchestral writing shimmer and to maintain a sense of both melodic line and the long line leading the movement to its end. There's a very Viennese glow to this. I loved the not totally realized cadence at around 3 minutes and 20 seconds, a characteristic of 20th century music. What was to be the tonic chord starts the next theme in minor after a pause. We don't get a sense of resolution. This section is solemn with gently drawn out, and I said they were tenuto notes. By that, I meant that they're not connected, but they're not staccato either. Tenuto really means that you're giving each note an accent. Maybe. There's some heavenly high strings a la Strauss. Strauss, who said that? Strauss and Wagner. Then the music gets agitated at the end of the fifth minute. When this quietens down, we get material that starts reaching upward, then a theme leading to resolution at nine minutes and 10 seconds. It's very solemn, calm, appealing, and this eventually leads to the movement to its end. The finale is labeled Allegro con fuoco with fire. Uh, and this is a moto perpetuo, which means it's just this rhythm that just kind of almost drives itself on like a machine. 
And the second theme of this uh, movement, by the way, comes from the 1935 film Captain Blood, where it was buried. <laughs> That's an Errol Flynn movie, too, I think. Um, there's a... The, wait, what's going on here? What did I do here? Uh, this comes uh, charging out of the gates with quick string figuration punctuated with pizzicati. Nice bass presence in the recording. Uh, at two minutes, the entire musical profile of the work changes as the strings lighten and hand off a repeating melodic motif, which is probably the Captain Blood theme. The scurrying strings start again. Then we get a more rustic theme at two minutes and 57 seconds. Uh, we tend to go back and forth between the lighter and scurrying themes, and the scurrying strings dominate. The melting theme we hear at the end would be the romantic music from Captain Blood, I guess. This has an interrupted cadence, interrupted by the scurrying strings, which brings the work to its final cadence in big-boned, Korngoldian fashion. Okay, so this is another um, set of recordings I've been uh, collecting on the Chandos label by John Wilson and the Symphonia of London. They really haven't missed yet either although none of these I, I these haven't become like my favorite recordings of any of these works but i have enjoyed them all um they always come up with compelling programs like this one and they've recorded a lot of corn gold in the past so i think they're especially good in that on this album the metamorphosis work here is excellent but i've heard more glowing performances in the past as i've said um uh, I think uh, the quicker tempo he takes takes something away from the work's shimmer and it's kind of Malarian and Straussian uh, romantic quality um, as the lines move more quickly. But the work is intellectually satisfying at this tempo. Korngold, as always with his music, is a real Viennese find. He's got a lot of clever ideas. Um, the whole program is excellent, but if you don't know the Korngold, at least hear this album for that. And I guess the Shrekker, too, which I need to hear again now. This ensemble has recorded a bit of Korngold's music before. They have a special way with it, and it's a good way to get to know it. I should mention that um, I, I mentioned the old Karyon uh, recording of Metamorphosis, and he was he, he lived through the war, too. And they had a really intense sense of what was lost. It's not just the culture, though. The, just people, that, you know, there were less people. Yeah. So many people died so horribly in war, as they always do. <laughs> I think it's not quite the same as kind of losing. <laughs> we we didn't really, it wasn't quite as traumatic for us to lose, like, the uh, the world we had, the we, world we had to computers. But the, there's a lot of uh, trauma being worked through mm. in these works, too. Um, so we want to keep that in mind. So I guess, like, with newer performers like John Wilson, I mean, they didn't live through anything this traumatic, but yet they're, you know, conducting this very traumatic music, and mm. I guess it doesn't come across as well as... It's still good, though. I mean, it's all there, yeah. but, uh, yeah, I think, you know, and you, I think a guy like Carrion in his mind's eye could really imagine, or even like, I think Bernstein recorded this, too, you know, what it was like before the entire world changed. Anyway, third classical album we're going to the mm. saxophone here uh, an album called the saxophone craze um by uh, jonathan radford on the saxophone and ashley fripp on the piano on the champs hill label which is a british label a very small british label um this is uh, an album exploring the music of the roaring 20s and it's an appealing it's a Pretty good history lesson, I'll say that. Um, it features um, the uh, saxophone, 
the devil's horn, as it was known <laughs> at the time. <laughs> yeah. The devil plays a lot of instruments. He plays the violin, he plays the horn, the saxophone, you know. Well, I mean, apparently, yeah. you know, if you read the religious descriptions of Satan, he was music. Like, his body yeah. was able to be all instruments or, you know, his he embodied all of these uh, different instruments. Hmm. So. And yet there's music in heaven. Go figure. Certainly ever since... Uh, R&B and rock and roll uh, came well, out yeah. and jazz. Yeah. That, uh, the sex uh, was a sinful sound uh, to yeah. lure young people into uh, all sorts of sinful types of behavior from that seductive yeah. sex. So it all started in the 20s, right? Yeah, it did. With all those, uh, well, one of the interesting things about reading the notes here is you get more of a sense of, again, this is um, after another war, World War One, mm. And... Um, it at that time, you know, people wanted to forget the war and have fun. Yep. And this, especially in in America, if you remember, also um, Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald in France in the twenties, uh, where alcohol was legal, uh, there was prohibition in the U.S. Yet people partied all the time. The Gershwins wrote musicals about. Yeah, how people were going to these speakeasies and wrote all these songs about uh, about it and things like that. People just wanted to uh, have fun, sure. And um, that's what led to this um, cultural explosion in the 1920s. All the big swing bands and the takeoff of jazz and things like that, and what's called the saxophone craze, which this album is um, named after. Um, the central figure of the program is the saxophonist. I hope I'm saying this right, Rudy V. Deft. You ever hear of this guy? Nope. He's a mayor in the saxophone history. Though. He's a hugely virtuosic and prolific musician known as the Chrysler of the saxophone. Yeah, back at that time, they would have always <laughs> made classical references to uh, the great players because, you know, the the great Western musicians were classical players and jazz was a new form of music. Right. Okay. So I guess Art Tatum would have been the the Rachmaninoff. <laughs> I don't know. They never called him anything. Though. T for two. T for two. All right. Um, actually, V-Deft was responsible for the saxophone craze. Let me spell that name for you. W-I-E-D-O-E-F-T. Rudy mm. V-Deft. I'm saying it like it's a German name, but I'm not sure it's pronounced that way. Um, a cultural phenomenon that would secure the future of the saxophone. So through his music, uh, his music is mostly forgotten today, but in the 1920s and 30s, Rudy Vedeft's music had an astronomical impact. Uh, the music on this album has helped shape the saxophone into what it has become today. Um, his music had a joie de vivre to it that people longed for after the horrors of the war. Um and his signature piece was a piece called Saxophobia, which we don't hear, a, which we don't hear no. on this album, unfortunately. I yeah. would have liked to have heard that. You can hear it on YouTube, which is one of the wonderful things about living today is that you can <laughs> yeah. just go hear these works that it. I never would have heard if there were no internet. I mean, I'm certainly mm. not going to go out and search for a record called Saxophobia, but <laughs> I'm glad I got to hear it. Uh, it came out in 1920 and sparked a saxophone craze that swept America within months of its release. And I think that saxophone craze really lasted well into the 1960s mm. until rock and roll kind of came along in the 50s, really. But jazz was still competing with rock and roll until the 60s, I think. 
Um, VDEF was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1893. Uh, his family originally from Germany. And he was a violinist at first, but he broke his bowing arm when he was 10 years old in a cycling accident. He took up the clarinet after that, became a professional player. And then he uh, learned the saxophone by going to, I guess, uh, oboe teachers or clarinet teachers and kind of got his technique from that. No one was teaching the saxophone. Mm. It wasn't a popular instrument. It was considered to be a toy, actually, <laughs> by Americans at the time. Uh, the early jazz bands, but they didn't have saxophones in them. No, nope. clarinet. Yeah. So a uh, little, little history there. Um, so he, he has this um, sliding legato style. Um, that kind of is reminiscent of um, wind instruments like the clarinet and the um, oboe. So he, he sort of invented that style. It also apparently left its mark on Bing Crosby, who uh, acknowledged VDF's influence on his smooth crooning vocal technique. Mm. Okay. You can hear, but you can read about VDF's uh, colorful life, including his uh, huge his alcoholism and his fights with his wife oh. <laughs> in the booklet notes. Um, I will leave that to you. Uh, <laughs> I, I wrote here, including the descent into alcoholism that was de rigueur at the time required. Basically, yes. Everybody was an alcoholic back then. I don't know. And he died of cirrhosis of the, uh, on 18th, February, 1940, the same year that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald died. Um, probably the same thing because he was he had done himself <laughs> in with alcohol. Uh, Radford, uh, Jonathan Radford, the saxophonist on this album, claims that uh, V. Deft's playing could easily have been inspired by the violin. Um, he applied his sense of string legato and articulation to the saxophone. Okay, so this is a really interesting program, um, but the performances are. Well, oh. actually, they're they're a mixed bag. Let's say, yeah. all right. Let's get started. This doesn't start terribly well, really, and that's a shame because the early works on this album um, are works I hadn't heard before. The first, and I wanted to, and this is the, my first listen to them, and they really just didn't take off. So let's. Uh, the first work is written by Justin Ring and Fred Hager Hager, um, H A G E R, Dance Hongroise, Dance. Hongroise. Let me get my French out there. Uh, this was transcribed by Rudy V. Deft. And this pays homage to classical music's fascination with gypsy music, which goes back to Haydn's time. You heard a lot in Brahms and Liszt. Yeah. And, it's um, a Hungarian dance, basically. It's a Hungarian dance, basically. Uh, the piano sound uh, on this... The, the Okay, now the recording is also a little odd. It starts not so well, but by the end, it actually sounds a lot better. Uh, the piano sound on this first track it sounds like a bit pasted on. It's a bit two-dimensional, like it's been smushed into like a flat smushed. cage. It's been smushed. <laughs> There's a uh, New, York, New York word for you. Smushed. smushed. Yeah, no one else is going to say that. <laughs> might be from Yiddish. Yeah, probably. That's probably why we know all these words, because yeah. uh, a lot of Yiddish speaking in New York. Anyway, it has a nice uh, glaze of room sound on it. It sounds like the recording was mic'd to get the sax sounding at its best, and they just ignored the piano, because it doesn't really <laughs> sound very present. Um, the actual Hungarian theme in this starts at a minute and 54 seconds. Uh, there's a nice change in the sax's tone at 2 minutes and 30 seconds. And there's some good athletic playing from the saxophone. It's an enjoyable light piece. I think there's more passion in it than we hear on this particular performance. Um, but it's impressive playing still. Okay, so I think um, 
little more could have been pulled out of that. Second track is uh, by Rudy Videft and Domenico Savino called Don Lorient, which is the in the Orient. And this pays homage to the fashion for all things exotic, present through the 20s in everything from the fairground palais de danse orientale to the orientalist designs of art deco cinemas in the USA and everywhere else, I guess. Um, this... Uh, I'm kind of I'm thinking when they say the Orient here, they're talking about Arab lands because I know yeah. this doesn't sound very um, yeah because they always have those angular Chinese sort of when they want to evoke yeah. China, you know. But they're not doing that here. In the sax cadenza, there's these sort of uh, Middle Eastern modes that he picks up. Yeah, a I think bit. that's what so it that's is. The yeah, Orient. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. yeah. At the time, that was probably very Oriental. Yeah. Right. Well, that's part of the Orient because. Right. Um, even in uh, Ravel's work, uh, Shahrazad, it starts talking about Arab countries, as I guess mm. a work uh, called Shahrazad would. But then it goes to China later. You got to get those Chinese kind of <laughs> themes in there. <laughs> anyway, this starts with a smooth, buttery sax tone. Uh, a faster section starts at a minute and 45 seconds, then back to the slower opening section. At two minutes and 45 seconds, we hear Radford's low end tone, and it's pretty rich and intriguing. This piece sounds more uh, like uh, walking through the woods at twilight, mysterious, than anything stereotypically oriental. But I guess the mysterious east is evoked in the quiet, creeping rhythm, and as Russ said, in any kind of modal sort of um, melodies. All right, now the work I was really interested in hearing um, comes next. This is Erwin Schulhoff, and it's called, it has a great title, Hot Sonat, <laughs> okay? Or Hot Sonata in English. It's got a French title, Hot Sonat. And uh, it mixes jazz um, elements mm. with classical form. I generally like works like this. I find them really fun. Um, but this performance, I feel, really doesn't put this work across. Anyway, Schulhoff was born in Prague, and uh, he interrupted work on his jazz oratorio, HMS Royal Oak, to compose this piece. Um, the first movement has a kind of um, Louis Moreau Gottschalk, like if you know this pianist from the 1840s, 1830s, he was popular in Paris. Um, he's an American pianist from New Orleans. He has this piece called Le Banjo, and uh, this has this kind of banjo strumming theme in the uh, accompaniment as the sax plays rich roulade material. Stylish, really more than it's hot. Um, I was just wondering if this movement's rhythm or profile wouldn't have benefited more from a faster tempo and more emphatic playing. And I went to the internet to hear this piece because I felt like it wasn't being put across here. And indeed, it's uh, better on YouTube. Just listen to some of the <laughs> performances there. The second movement, no, please, I don't want to like, um, I, I just feel like there's not much enthusiasm being put into this particular work and I don't want to damn the album don't uh, get rid of it yet because there's good stuff coming up anyway movement two I'm not getting much of a jazz feel from this it sounds more like uh, polite uh, salon classical music mm -hmm. uh, we get some jazzy rhythms in the piano just before the first movement but I feel like the momentum isn't being built up enough to put this music across I hear the idiomatic jazz riffs in the sax but it, the playing isn't really hot enough to make this really come off Third movement is a blues played in wailing style by the sax, and it's good, but again, the players err on the side of refinement and caution, going for sound effects more than feel. Uh, the piano isn't doing much to help, 
by just playing the repeated chords um, as though they're like just f- quarter notes. Dun, dun, dun. They should sound more spring-loaded, you know, like they're going to mm-hmm. – they're pushing – like they'd be pushing the violin off. To hear what I mean, you can go to YouTube and listen to some of the performances on there. Um, he sounds like he's just reading this off the score and marking time. And uh, in a jazz work, that's not really a good approach here. Uh, when he gets a few riffs to play, he doesn't make them sound bluesy. It's all too genteel. And it's not like he doesn't have the ability to do this. I mean, we'll hear later in Rhapsody in Blue that he seems to really enjoy yeah. playing this because he puts across the jazz elements really well. I think he's just not doesn't like this piece. Could be, yeah. I don't know. I wanted to hear more to it, though. The fourth movement is a movement that should be played with more excitement generated in the phrasing and rhythm, but it sounds matter-of-fact here. I can hear the jazz elements of the piece, um, but they're not being drawn out nearly enough by the musicians here. Uh, This movement is a faster one and has a 1920s jazz dance quality to it. There's a quieter, wistful middle section with some satisfying turns of phrase in the melody. Too subtle, careful, and genteel to register, as it should, though, as a jazzy piece. Um, again, check out some YouTube videos. Um, I feel like this piece deserved better. It's actually a lot better piece than it sounds like here. Mm. Um, so, sorry guys. That's <laughs> you should try it again. <laughs> anyway, seventh Rudy Vidolf. We get two waltzes from him. The first one is called Waltz Llewellyn. This and the next piece are miniatures created to fit one side of a seventy-eight RPM record, reminiscent of Fritz Kreisler's violin encore pieces. In this piece, too, it's a waltz. This is more in the um, classical wheelhouse, but the piano is too matter-of-fact. Once the waltz starts at about 20 seconds in, things feel more carefree. But again, I feel like it could have made more could have been made of the rhythm, which is too straight. There's no real sense mm. of the dancing quality of the waltz here. I do like Ashcross playing in this, though. Um, the second of the two works is Vals Marilyn, and this one comes across with more sensitivity and subtlety than the previous one. Uh, it's taken beautifully with nice phrasing from Ashcroft. The pauses and retards at the end of phrases are all well taken. He gets some nice roulades off at the end of as well. Good emphatic ending. Okay, what I recommend to listeners is to start this album at just... You should hear tracks one through eight later. But start at track nine, because this is where things start getting good. <laughs> the players really seem to be interested in this music at this point. Um, this is um, Kurt Vile extracts from the Three Penny Opera. And it sounds to me like the musicians from this point on really are really into all the music they're playing. It's almost like two different recordings. Um, this particular Kurt Vile extracts from Three Penny Opera are the highlight of the album. Um, Vile, of course, integrates classical and jazz styles in his compositions. Uh, the pianist is pretty careful with the accompaniment, making sure we hear all the moving inner harmonic notes, and he's full of character and gets it right here. One of the sax, once the sax comes in, it all sounds smooth and appealing. I liked the interpretation of Mac the Knife. Uh, the sax occasionally sounds like a clarinet in this, which I thought was really cool. Um, it's a pretty arrangement. By the way, the arrangement is by Radford and Ashley, Jonathan Radford and the pianist Ashley Fripp. So I guess they're really digging their arrangement. Mm. <laughs> they play it exceptionally well. The piano's recorded sound has improved on this track too. It's more present and has more of a rounded sound. It doesn't sound like a two-dimensional anymore. It must have been recorded on a different day with different mics or something. 
All right, next we get, these are all um, extracts from the, we get Ballad of the Pleasant Life, uh, Good Arrangement, um, Good Feeling, Polly's Song, this one's taken quietly, beautifully played. Um, Radford's uh, saxophone is highly lyrical on these tracks. Tango Ballad, the tango idiom in this comes across very well. Uh, another nice lyrical performance by Radford, and Ashley has the measure of the tango rhythm in this. Um, and finally, the canon song. Radford's sax comes up sounding like a clarinet again in this. Nice, smooth sound, characterful, idiomatic performance of this famous tune. Track 14 is uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, uh, Waltz Number 2 from Suite for Variety Orchestra. This is also arranged by Jonathan Radford and Ashley Fripp, the two musicians playing it. Uh, this sounds like a mechanical fairground waltz, um, maybe like a on a carousel or maybe on one of these wind it's up got that um pop so, piano yeah. bass mm, bum, bum, right bum, bum, kind of thing going on that's probably what Shostakovich was after here yeah. it could be played as a straight waltz too but I think he wants it to be more sort of you know not characterful mm. of the waltz um, ironic I guess in a way the duo sat at home in this brief piece um, yeah, maybe more motion could have been put into it, but uh, this works well as a 20th century take on the waltz. It's an idiomatic look back. At, not idiomatic, um, ironic look back at the 20th century, uh, at the 19th century. Finally, we get Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue arranged for three saxophones, alto, mm. soprano, and tenor, all played by uh, Radford, and a piano. And this is uh, the arrangements by Jun Nagao. The opening bend on the saxophone sounds great and is well taken by Radford. Uh, the piano sound has gained a dimension since the beginning of this album. It's more full sounding. Ashley is fairly characterful in Gershwin's stylings, but he hands over most of the interesting parts to Radford on the saxophone. Um, Ashley doesn't have a great jazz feel on the piano, but he's good in this piece. Um, it's probably a piece he's had some... Uh, background with he sounds it sounds like he gets it um the sax is integrated into the score well it's an interesting arrangement and it works well um radford plays idiomatically with some interesting ad libs in this score it sounds like he really likes the work it sounds like an enthusiastic performance and the arrangement is varied enough in his approach to keep the ear interested the soulful quiet segment preceding the build-up to the ending theme is atmospheric on the sax the grand ending theme is taken slowly and in a stately way. Um, in works like this, it, it, this work works, particularly given the instrumentation. We hear some impressive piano playing on the track in the section preceding this one and at the end. Um, not a terribly full recorded sound on this album, but tone and detail register nicely. The ensemble seem to get inspired only from the Kurt Viola works on. So this is really a sort of album. Um, it's half really good and half kind of uninspired. It's recommended with reservations. I would say start at track nine and go from there. Yeah, I enjoyed the latter works more myself. Uh, the Kurt Vio works, Mac the Knife, and then, well, the Gershwin, because we're used to hearing these works on clarinet. So right. uh, hearing it then done on sax and then splitting it for alto And all the way soprano. through on sax too. Yeah, you know? and, and three different saxes. Uh, that, mm -hmm. that was kind of interesting for me. Uh, the earlier pieces, like I like you said, I didn't get a lot of uh, inspirational playing. 
uh, vibes from them, rather just sort of more reading from the page. And I, uh, I think the program is really interesting. And this yeah. album, though, it could have been so much better than it is. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what's killing me about it's, it. It's sort of exploring this very important era in the development of the saxophone, but it comes off kind of uh, stale and academic in the interpretation in the earlier works, uh, just yeah. kind of reading off the page. And those are the works we really needed the good performances of because they're all yeah, cause those the first the ones time we don't know. them. But mm. uh, yeah, anyway, if you're kind of uh, a sex uh, scholar or enthusiast and you want to see what's going, what was going on in that period, sort of uh, the sex emerging into popular music of the time, jazz, and also how it crossed over into the classical realm. Uh, I think that uh, this material would be of great interest, uh, but you might want to seek out other performances of some of these works. Yeah, it's a great history lesson, yeah. this album. And the booklet notes are pretty uh, interesting as well, mm. Right. If you, if you wind up with the CD. Yeah. Speaking of saxophone. All right, is it jazz time? It's jazz. Well, it's, I think we've already kind of morphed into jazz in a, in a way. Well, uh, since it's sax night or sax <laughs> episode here, uh, we're going to have a lot of sax. Uh, <laughs> um, let's have sax. Let's have sax. Yeah, let's talk about sax. Let's um, have more sax. And we're going to have... Uh, we're gonna have group sex on uh, a lot of these recordings because there's there's sex is going all over the place here. That's one of the problems. I'm I'm uh, kind of uh, navigating without a map on some of these recordings uh, because there's a lot of players and as especially the second recording. Uh, but these are uh, the second and third are very new recordings, and uh, I don't think we can get the CDs yet in Japan. Uh, but I wanted to get yeah. them out there. This is one of the issues with um, you know listening on streaming, and especially a lot of jazz players are recording or releasing their records like only on streaming, right? And you don't have any credits. You don't know if you if you have say three saxes on an album, you don't know who's playing what. Exactly. You know? It's kind of a so that's yeah. that's a, the the one of the difficulties with this uh, program we've got tonight. But well, I'll do my best anyway. So we're gonna start out with a real not now. I won't even say sax master. This guy. Let me say, this is the Woodwing King. Now, you might think you have some uh, instruments in your collection. You might think you play <laughs> some different instruments, but you you are not going to compare it to Doug Webb, uh, oh. who we're going to check out first here uh, with his new recording on Positone Records. So this one goes back to last month. Uh, it's called The Message. And uh, this one got my interest right away because it was uh, sax with organ Hammond B3 yeah. and uh, we're always uh, big fans of uh, any organ recording so this uh, got but especially on my... this one because this is who yeah. oh, we got organist? Brian Charette uh, yeah we've, we uh, love him before yeah great Hammond B3 yeah, he's... player yeah and, and uh, we've got multiple sax uh, players on here but about Webb himself he's uh, actually born in Chicago but at a young age moved to California uh, and uh, he got uh, his music degree uh, back on the East Coast in uh, Boston's Berkeley College of Music uh, also studying clarinet uh, saxophone and flute now you know that's where the in the modern uh, woodwind player you know in if you see a big band or various uh, 
jazz sax performers often double up on different instruments. So we'll hear some flute. We had a tenor player with the soprano. But uh, Doug Webb uh, has got a little bit more in his arsenal, we could say. Uh, before we get to that, uh, over his career, he's uh, played and recorded with some of the greatest names in jazz. Horace Silver, Freddie Hubbard, Stanley Clark, Quincy Jones. Uh, who else we got uh, in the pop realm? Uh, Rod Stewart, Carly Simon, Kenny Rogers, Bonnie Raitt, uh, more uh, jazz, Pancho Sanchez. Uh, he was in, uh, being out on the West Coast, he did some TV work, Dennis Miller TV show, uh, Doc Severance and Big Band, and he's done some uh, soundtrack uh, work featuring his solos, uh, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby, and uh, Jersey Boys. <laughs> The, uh, Frankie boys. Valley, uh, down there, right? Frankie Valley. Yeah. Uh, now he also, as I mentioned, uh, plays all of these uh, woodwind instruments. And uh, you got to, if you haven't checked out, come over to our Facebook page. I put a, a video up there from earlier this year where he performs 150 instruments in his collection on one single composition. <laughs> and there are instruments in there which are. <laughs> did you? You saw that, right? I mean, there are like, uh, he's got everything from uh, bassoons and uh, Middle Eastern instruments, uh, everything. Uh, He's got, uh, you know, soprillo, sopranino, uh, soprano sax, slide slide saxophones. He's got, uh, what did we hear last week? Uh, The the big clarinet. uh, Oh, the the bass clarinet. Uh, not the, not just the bass clarinet, the the um, the one we heard name. on the Mozart. Uh, oh, the uh, Bassett. Ba- yeah, the Bassett, Bassett clarinet, clarinet. He's got that okay. in there too. Well, uh, all, all kinds of double reads. Okay. That, you got to check that out. Uh, it's just amazing, uh, and all, all sorts of ethnic instruments too. Uh, a lot of them, uh, and some of the other like Frankenstein type uh, instruments that must be one of a kind. <laughs> yeah. uh, there, uh, it's it's very cool. Uh, anyway, on this recording, uh, he's just confined himself to the tenor saxophone, and he has uh, another tenor companion with him. Uh, that would be Bob Reynolds, who I believe is the tenor player for uh, Snarky Puppy, uh, uh, popular group. I like them. And, uh, and mm-hmm. another sax player. Uh, on alto, we've got Greg Osby, uh, kind of a unique player. Uh, so we've got three saxes in the lineup, and... Uh, they're they're all very different sounding too, so they're, they're pretty easy sounding. to pull um, out. Yeah, but I'm not always sure between the tenor yeah. players because I've heard you know Doug Webb play on a lot of things, but I don't have a real concept of his personality. Well, they're they're like two different timbres. One of them is really kind of almost rounded and yeah. smooth, and the other one has like a bit of a buzz to it. You know, I believe Webb has the smoother. Sound. I think that's the really? characteristic of his tenor okay. sound. Is this very kind of a okay. smooth type of sound based on the equipment that he's using? Um, hmm. And Reynolds is a little bit more. Uh, yeah, uh, I don't want to say he has a rough tone, but uh, it, in comparison, it might be a little bit more. Uh, well, yeah, you don't want to edgy. say it's a rough tone. In yeah, he's he's got an edgy tone. Maybe yeah, it would be better. He's kind of going for something yeah. a little wilder. Yeah. yeah, and Osby has a very. <laughs> Uh, that, well, of course, he's on alto here. Not only is his tone unique, but his uh, phrasing concept is a little bit out there uh, <laughs> yeah. comp- in comparison. So it makes for an interesting recording. And uh, Charette on organ, uh, so he's also covering the bass with the uh, pedals. And we've got 
uh, Charles. Boy, does he shine on this record. This is a great yeah, record, I thought. It's really it's yeah. a lot of fun here. Mm-hmm. It's just hard, mostly mm-hmm. uh, really hard-driving swing. And we've got uh, Charles uh, Ruggiero on drums, uh, who lays down the, the beat here. Uh, so I, I'm not going to say who's, I don't exactly know on the tenors who's playing what uh, here. And I don't have the notes. I looked online uh, to get them. This, uh, But until I get the CD, I won't know for sure. Uh, but you're going to get a lot of uh, hard driving and fun uh, tunes on this recording. Uh, we start out with a web original called Caught in the Web. Uh, mm. Fitting title. With two Bs, yeah. Yeah. A very big swinger of a 12-bar blues uh, that also has a bridge. So they usually do like a 12-bar and then uh, the bridge between and then one more blues chorus. Uh, all the saxes come out in uh, force, harmonized on the melody. And uh, it's sort of all laid over this kind of bubbling, percolating, walking bass line by Charette on the organ. Yeah. Uh, first, we get a tenor takes uh, center stage. I think it's Webb who starts this out because it's that smooth uh, tone. But like I say, I'm not sure because I don't have notes here. Um, the uh, other sax is back behind it. And then that tenor moves into uh, the solo. The sax is solo in succession, all blowing hard. It's tenor, alto, tenor. Uh, in the succession of solos. Uh, After a repeat of the melody, uh, there's some held out chords for additional jamming and then an extra crank up of the organ uh, by Charette at the end uh, to uh, finish it up. So there's a really big swinger uh, blues with a bridge to get things started. Uh, I want to say, by the way, about this, Mm. that um, Charette does a lot to really make this album you know, yeah. go over it because it sounds like he's just thrilled to be playing with these guys because he it, when he plays the bass he's playing the bass with his feet you know on the yeah. organ it just sounds like he's just bouncing off the pedals yeah. like he's just so he's got such energy and this is really going to be the case in a, in a future in a track that's coming up yeah. but uh I, I really feel like he pushes this recording like over the top you know he has yeah. a lot to do with why it sounds so energetic it sounds bigger than it is I mean, yeah. it sounds like a larger ensemble mm-hmm. all the time. And the enthusiasm uh, and energy just, it, it leaks out from every single tune. Uh, yeah, everybody's got that energy. It's not yeah. just him, but I just noticing it it's so much from him. Yeah, he you makes know, like the he recording. Really he, to... The concept of the sound is yeah. formed by the organ. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. The next tune is an Osby original, uh, Nicky Day. It looks kind of like... N- Naked. <laughs> I want to think he's naked. Naked Deb. Yeah, Naked Deb. N e k i d e. Um, this one starts with some swinging sax lines uh, that come in. Then uh, Charette brings up the bass. Uh, Osby comes up first. It's his own tune, uh, so he solos. He's got this very angular and trilly kind of uh, solo. <laughs> kind of odd. Uh, he's a, he's a, he has his own odd concept uh, of phrasing, as I said. Uh, Charette adds uh, chord stabs uh, behind as Osby gets uh, exploring into kind of outer harmonic regions here. Uh, There's a little layering of saxes for a buffer uh, between uh, the alto solo and the next tenor solo. Uh, Charette is listening intensely, you can tell, and he adds lots of answering lines to what's going on in the solo. He's he's really cued into here. Uh, There's another sax interplay before the next tenor solo too. Uh, these chords in this tune that Osby's composed lend themselves to rather 
angular and angsty kind of phrases. Uh, it's it's not a kind of smooth type of progression. Uh, and then after the solos, uh, all three saxes join in for a little feeding frenzy <laughs> where they're all uh, hmm. jamming out there. And a final unusual cadence of ending chords. Uh, underneath that sax work, uh, there's hard driving uh, through and good interplay between Charette and Ruggiero on the drums there. The third tune is called The Message. And yeah. uh, here we've got uh, the composer is uh, listed as S. Hofstetter. I don't know who that is. But uh, anyway, uh, this one's a driving minor kind of hard boppy tune uh, set around two alternating chords. Uh, builds up some tension. Another good sax harmonized arrangement of this intense melody. Uh, it simmers down a little bit uh, when the first tenor solo comes up. Uh, this time we've got back-to-back -back tenor solos here that trade off, and they're both uh, smoking with intensity. Osby follows up on alto, uh, a little bit more harmonically adventurous uh, than the tenors. He really does have a unique phrasing concept uh, mm -hmm. uh, compared. Uh, it's it's a nice contrast between the other two this, horns here. This whole album is so interesting for for really a lot of reasons. It's yeah. not just Charette and the uh, phrasing by the altos. There's yeah. so many interesting things happening yeah. on this. Lots of good stuff going on. Uh, and they wrap it up going through the melody uh, of the tune once more. Uh, we're going to go traditional uh, with a little Gershwin tune. Next, I was doing all right. Uh, this one begins with a very bouncy swing feel that Charette uh, provides on the organ. Uh, the saxes trade off on the melody here, weaving harmonic lines uh, behind each other. Osby's up first on the alto, then uh, the tenors in succession. Everything is bubbling and happy because of Charette's organ groove. Uh, Charette gets an organ solo himself on this one. Uh, with uh, melodic and clearly articulated notes. Uh, he often likes to use a very uh, straight tone to start things out on the organ. So he'll have, uh, you know, the stops pulled out for a clear tone, not much Leslie spinning, and he focuses on articulation uh, a lot as he does in this tune. Uh, now we've got a tune by Reynolds, the sax player, called Frustration, track five. Uh, funky and swinging sax melody here. The line turns into a minor blues uh, once the first tenor solo comes up. Uh, Charette fans the flames nicely with hits and tension-building chords. Uh, after that first tenor solo, Osby is next. Uh, again, a little more harmonically adventurous ideas uh, before another tenor solo after that. Uh, and then Charette gets in on the fun too. Uh, sparse uh, at the beginning and then getting some very percussive repeated notes. Uh, they do some solo trading off, uh, a horn taking the first four bars of the blues chorus and then the drums taking uh, the eight uh, afterwards uh, before uh, they hit the melody once more. That's kind of a interesting trade-off. Normally we're going to have trading fours or trading eights, but here we've got the blues form, so four and then uh, eight uh, with the drums. Uh, so uh, breaks it up kind of nice. Uh, and get some drum work in there too. This is frustration now, right? Frustration, yeah. Yeah, the organ solo on this was really fantastic, yeah, really, really funky. Yeah. yeah, and then what? And while he's playing this, he's got that walking bass going. It's, he's, it's a high energy bass as well. It just sounds so fantastic yeah, on that solo. It, it just sounds like a real standout for me. Sounds bigger than it is. Uh, that organ just 
just really f makes it sound like a huge ensemble. Uh, track six is called Doug's Dilemma, and uh, this is uh, a comp composition by Randy Aldcroft, uh, who's also a uh, a trombonist uh, composer, maybe a friend of Webb's. I think he's active on the West Coast. And this is ballad, so uh, slow it down for this one. Uh, one tenor, I think this is Webb uh, here, uh, who carries the melody, uh, sounding sweet. Uh, very nice organ uh, sound behind there. Uh, the other sexes weave in with harmony. Osby's higher tone on the alto stands out, making a nice contrast in the sax arrangement. Uh, the tenor solo works up in emotional intensity to a nice climax before the other horns join in again. Uh, then it eases to a tenor solo sax to the end of the tune. Uh, nice tone selection by Charette with the silky organ chords underneath. Uh, this sort of very light uh, gospel-y kind of tone. Uh, track seven, Keeping Up With The Joneses. Uh, this is a... Uh, Altcroft uh, composition. Medium swinging tune here. Good sax arrangement on the melody. It's more a relaxed vibe, uh, and the tenors reflects that uh, in uh, both their solos. However, uh, Osby's uh, solo in between uh, sounds more frantic uh, in comparison. Uh, Ruggiero is doing a lot of nice fills and textures on the drums in this one, and Charette gets the final solo with happy and bluesy lines over this constantly chugging bass pedals that uh, moves the tune along uh, once more around the melody uh, and a happy ending uh, leaves you in a good mood uh, as this whole album does but especially this track um, mm. then we've got uh, another Aldcroft composition eight new beginning this one's got kind of a samba beat to it uh, Ruggiero keeps the new beat moving in style as the sexes sail through this breezy harmonized melody uh, Osby solos first with uh, lines full of rhythmic turning phrases. Uh, then we've got a uh, nice breezy tenor solo. This might be Webb up first here. Uh, he quotes a fascinating rhythm, uh, fits it over the harmonizino. Like that old uh, melody. Uh, the second solo gets a bit more animated with some fast lines, tumbling phrases and high register notes uh, before it settles down. And then uh, Charette is up next, uh, starting with that pure tone that he likes at first. Uh, he pulls out some speedy running figures between little staccato melodic phrases. Uh, and uh, this tune stands out. It's nice to have a Latin tune to break up all of the hard swinging that's going on on the recording. Yeah. Uh, then we're going to go to a forest and right tune, the old bog bulls, bangles, and beads. Uh, hmm. uh, old standard that... Uh, Frank Sinatra sang. That's the one I know. Yeah. That's how I know it too. It's yep. funny you should say that. He's sick yeah. because he sang this. Yeah. Yep. Uh, a good old American songbook tune. And they give it a nice medium swing that it deserves here. Uh, tenor and alto trade off lines uh, before all three come in on the arrangement. Uh, there's a solo break into a tenor solo. And then Charette has uh, dark comping going on uh, underneath the tart sax. Uh, nice uh, contrast of tones. Uh, there's another break uh, for Osby's even tartar alto tone. Uh, thick tartar sauce with lemon, and you get that kind of taste of the alto here. Um, similar fashion of the break for tenor two and the solo. 
And then Charette gets a go around as well uh, before they uh, let us hear the swinging melody arrangement once more. And uh, track 10, another Reynolds tune. Uh, Where did you come from? Question mark. Uh, that's the name of the tune. An intro of rising sax lines. Uh, a single tenor carries the main melody here into a bigger sax arrangement uh, that brings back uh, kind of rising lines. This one has a light Latin even beat feel to it. There's a contrasting section, second section of the melody that builds up tension with uh, syncopated phrases. Then things simmer down for the first tenor solo with uh, snaking lines that kind of slither over these interesting chord changes. Uh, sandwiched in between is Osby uh, with the solo. Uh, has a lot of dexterous phrases uh, in here. He's got all these really interesting uh, patterns uh, snaking through the harmonies that he uh, works in here. He builds up the solo uh, nicely, uh, followed up by another tenor solo uh, that's uh, very... Uh, charged as well and then charrette uh too uh, it's a cool solo uh off by charrette impressive speedy lines uh with some percussive chords and uh he gets some uh, leslie fun swirling up with the action at the end uh after a repeat of the melody they vamp out uh for a little while and ruggiero gets some time for some intense drumming and we end up with a charrette original uh bonnie lass uh, and this one is a medium swing tune, a full sax arranged opening that trades the melody back and forth with Charette's organ. Uh, Charette gets the solo a bit. Uh, Osby blows uh, a solo himself with a topsy-turvy fast phrases that will spin your head around on this one. Uh, <laughs> and then the two tenors go next, uh, still sounding inspired all the way to the end on this last tune, uh, never running out of cool ideas. So it's a real swinging recording. Uh, tons of positive energy. You can tell they're enjoying themselves. Three sexes, a, Horman, a, Harm, a Hammond organ, and nice tight drumming. Uh, this is recommended for all sax and organ fans, anyone who likes just swinging along jazz in general. Uh, lots of positive energy, good grooves, and uh, great sax. Great sax and great, yeah, all kinds of, you know, like you said, Osby's interesting figures, Brian Charette's yeah. uh, fantastic play. This one goes right into the collection and may even be in the running for my top 10. Oh, wow. Jazz wow. albums of the year, as you know. Well, I don't know yet. You know, let's we'll yeah. see. Although that that uh, that list is kind of growing, you know, yeah, already. Yeah. There are yeah. a few things on there. Like we heard that, um, yeah, the uh, Foltz one with the ba the bass clarinet. And, oh, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there are all kinds of cool things already right. this year, so. As you know, at the end of the year, Russ picks his 10 favorite classical albums. I pick my friend's favorite jazz, favorite jazz ones. And then we fill yeah. it. We fill them out each other's lists with the other stuff we like. Yeah. Right. yeah. I wanted, I, we, we do that because I'm afraid, you know, just in case, like, say, Russ will leave something out of the jazz. I want to yeah. put this in, you know? Yep. So that's what we do. Yeah. Anyway, this is, yeah, excellent high energy album. Uh, Charette delivers more than his share of the goods. I really love the uh, the uh, Hammond organ, and he's just yeah. fantastic on this yeah. record, even yeah. more so than on his. Because I went back and listened to his um, solo. I think he sounds his, better um, here. He sounds leader. more excited. Yeah, I thought yeah. he sounded better here too. Yeah. That's often the case, though, when people are kind of side men. They kind of they. I guess they feel freer. There's no pressure on them. Right. Like they're just going to play a solo, but they're kind of, if they're the leader of the project, they, they've got a lot of things right. to think about. I think that sort of preoccupies them. Could be. But yeah, he sounds better here than he did on that album, I thought. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, he propels this album to a higher level, but everybody does really. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting it's album. Really great play. Feels good. Put you in a good mood. I know there are a lot of people out there uh, that aren't very happy now, but this is something you'll want to listen to. It'll kind of at least for 40, 50 yeah. minutes. How long was this? An hour? Um, yeah, it's about an hour. Yeah, yeah, it's about an hour long, this album. It'll put you in a good place. It was really yeah. good. And uh, mm-hmm. definitely uh, check out our Facebook page or go on YouTube and search Doug Webb and then see that uh, 150 instrument uh, video. Uh, it'll <laughs> knock your socks off. Uh, oh, boy. You know, I, I think maybe his wife said, you have all these instruments, but you never play them. And he said, oh, yeah. <laughs> and so he played them all on one tune. You know, I, if you think you have... Uh, a bunch of instruments. You don't have as many as Doug Webb does. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to go Cuban next. Um, All right. Now, this is the album. This is the hardest. Uh, this one just came out last week, and it has a whole cast of characters on it, and uh, we got no album. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's available online, so um, we're going to have to do some guesswork here. Uh, this is the latest release by saxophonist Carlos Averhoff Jr. And of course, there's a senior, Carlos Averhoff Sr. is a uh, <laughs> successful and uh, celebrated uh, Cuban saxophonist. And um, well, sadly, this album is called uh, Together. Uh, the idea was uh, that he was going to record this album with his father, um, hmm. who passed away uh, during its production. Yeah and uh, only appears here, as far as I can tell, on one track. Um, so, okay. uh, Averoff Jr. Uh, was working on this, and uh, this was going to be their first collaborative work together, but uh, his father departed too soon uh, to complete it. Uh, so, it turns out to be a kind of tribute to his father. Uh, nice album uh, cover work here, if you see this sort of... Uh, balanced black and white uh, juxtaposition of uh, representing the two uh, father and son images and mm-hmm. saxophone here. Um, now, uh, we've got a, a full cast of musicians here. Averhoff Jr. appears on uh, tenor sax. He's uh, got a real gutsy sound uh, as the main player here. We've got a lot of the other players, though. Uh, Jim Gassier on piano, Nestor Del Prado on bass, uh, Renier Guerra on drums, uh, guest Chucho Valdez on piano, uh, mm. Nicky Orta also on bass, Juan Manguilla, trumpet and flugelhorn, Juan Wickley, Nogueras, conga, Nestor Torres, uh, flute, uh, German Velzaco, alto sax, Orlando uh, Maracavalle also on flute, Horacio El Negro Hernandez on drums, uh, Maggie Marquez on voice on one track, Frederico Britos violin, Ahmed Barroso guitar, Richie Zalong also on guitar, Cesar Lopez alto saxophone, and uh, Carlos Everoff Sr. soprano saxophone. <laughs> hmm. so, uh, who's playing on what track? We don't Hard really know. Uh, <laughs> but uh, some of it will be apparent, uh, for, especially on track one. Uh, it's called A Sequence for You. It uh, starts with a two-minute uh, piano opening, dramatic chords, and impossible-sounding runs, all signatures <laughs> of Chucho Valdez. Uh, so right. he's obviously... He's, uh, he's very classical-sounding on this, too, yes, which is kind of yeah. interesting, too. Um, 
You know, he yeah. brings that sort of explosive uh, uh, runs and uh, frantic kind of uh, thing to it. So it's obviously him on this track here. Uh, that mm. intro on piano and then Latin percussion leads to uh, Averhoff's tenor uh, bringing in the horn arrangement on this grooving melody. Uh, we get a very funky Latin electric bass solo uh, underlaid by some interesting piano chords from Valdez. Uh, next, more tight horn lines with good intensity. Averoff gets uh, his first tenor solo of the album here. He has a full muscular kind of tone, uh, licks that snap into that groove. It must be in that Cuban blood uh, that, uh, you know, can they have, they can do jazz, but it it all comes back to that rhythm and it locks mm. right in here. Uh, we get a really nice uh, trumpet solo from uh, Munguia also here next, showing off a lot of dexterity. And then the true uh, horn, sax, and trumpet trade off after that. Things quiet down uh, for a while then to a slow buildup of a piano solo over congas and drums. Uh, it gets really hot and bothered with crazy fast lines uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, Chicho Valdez is known for. Uh, then we get more tightly arranged horns on the melody section. Uh, things get kind of a halftime feel for a percussion breakdown uh, between horn and bass and piano lines uh, that I've slowed up uh, to fit the percussion in and then they push to the end. Uh, track two is called The Magician. Uh, here, a slow grooving tune. The melody is carried uh, with flute layered on top of tenor uh, for a nice sound spread. Uh, you've got that uh, kind of octave spread with different tonalities. There's some cool stops and chordal surprises in the tune. Uh, first up is this fun, fluttery flute solo that has that bird-like tonal quality yeah. to it. Uh, I really liked this. Yeah, yeah, it really twitters and, uh, you know, bristles the hairs on your <laughs> neck uh, from that tone. Uh that kind of uh, very bright flute sound. Uh, stylish piano solo. Next, I'm guessing uh, this is obviously not uh, Chicho Valdez. So this must be uh, Jim Gassier here. A nice piano solo. Uh, a very gutsy pian uh, tenor solo from Averhoff. Next, uh, packed with tight rhythmic licks. And then we go back uh, to the Saxon flute melody, which sounds uh, even more smooth this time and placid after those adventurous solos. Uh, the drums kick up the intensity uh, to the uh, final softer ending notes. Uh, track three uh, is Together, title track here. Uh, two saxes on the fun disjointed melody uh, that has some close intervals in the harmonies. Uh, there's a piano solo next that's quite playful. Uh, Averoff is up next, uh, also playfully uh, getting into the upper register uh, and throwing in some bluesy ideas on tenor. Uh, then we've got the uh, alto. I'm not sure who it is. It's either it must be one of the two Velasco or Lopez on the alto solo. Uh, some harmonic tension and fun smeared runs with a very tart tone on the alto. Uh, both sexes join back in on the loopy melody uh, for another round uh, through it. Track four is called Oriented Conga. Uh, and you get a big conga intro for this one, joined by drums then Averoff's tenor over the intensifying beat. Uh, add flute, and by the time bass and piano join in, uh, the sax and flute lines are tight and flighty. Uh, there's some stop time and groove change-ups under the melody that keeps things exciting. And then 
here another intense flute solo it's a very different quality flute here uh this is a darker tone flute i think this might be nestor torres uh this sounds more like uh, what i've heard from him in the past on this one uh then we're going to get another hot tenor solo from averhoff uh before a return into the uh kind of intro with uh, percussion tenor and flute reintroduction uh, the piano joins along uh, and jams out as the fade as the tune fades out track five is uh, Beatrice this one has uh, kind of tart <laughs> and clipped tenor licks that are joined by angular guitar uh, before the rest of the rhythm section kicks in it goes from intense... those words also describe Beatrice yeah <laughs> <laughs> she's kind of tart and tart she's uh, such a tart kind of trying to picture what kind of woman this would be yeah. this is the theme they're giving her yeah it goes from intense and syncopated uh, to a little more <laughs> settled as the tenor and guitar uh, next trade-off melody lines uh, before going back to the angular uh, intro style again uh, a unique and percussive piano solo is up first and then uh, Averoff is next uh, a more lyrical solo start he becomes more intense as he reaches the climax of his solo. And I guess the guitarists here are Richie Zellom. Uh, he's got a solo. It's got very interesting phrasing, cool double stop lines. Uh, turns into next an ominous piano vamp section for some uh, drum solo time with intense tom work. And then uh, tenor and guitar join back in for the final push to the end. Uh, let's see, we've got uh, track six, En la Orilla del Mundo. Uh, this one has a, a pretty guitar intro, uh, and then some melody on violin by uh, Federico Britos uh, that lead into the vocals by Maggie Marquez, uh, who herself has a rich voice and a very nice uh, Spanish enunciation. Uh, they phrasing just matches these musical phrases well the violin and sax add some counter lines under the vocals uh, here and there uh, throughout the verse and then uh, in between these verses uh, violin and Averoff trade off some solos uh, it's very interesting the pitch on the violin is very wavering uh, so it gives yeah, it this kind this of, was kind of swooning quality around the center of the pitch uh, you know whether it's stylistic or unnerving, you can decide how, how you yeah, feel. I, I didn't know what to make of this myself. I was kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I think I prefer more focused violin sound, right. but she's going for something folky it's here, It's a little I think. kind of drunken folkiness yeah. to it. Uh, yeah. Marquez is back for some more vocals, and then the violin and sax add uh, more background to the tune. Uh, track seven, I like this title, Not For Everybody. <laughs> It's an uninclusive <laughs> tune. Uh, starts with some intense, repeated. We we we, we need more non-inclusivity. <laughs> yes, we do. Yeah, I think we're doing a good job so far on the podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this one's got intense, repeated alto and tenor phrases to start it out. Uh, the sax lines are tricky and tight as they swirl and tumble through this crazy melody. Uh, very nice syncopated bass and drum hits underneath. The alto is up first for a solo here. It's a fun slurpy, and I mean slurpy mix of <laughs> boppy and bluesy lines. Uh, yeah. yeah, sounds like he's uh, sucking up a uh, milkshake through the <laughs> saxophone here, but it's it's very fun. Uh, next, a fun rhythmic dancing piano solo, 
and then Alvarez has an intense tenor solo uh, connecting together furious lines uh, there's some unison sax and piano phrases with lots of space for some uh, drum filling and then some final crazy wavering sax lines uh, on this tune and we're going to end up the recording mm. with uh, a uh, standard tune Donna Lee uh, this one begins with an acoustic bass groove uh, intro that's joined by drums and then piano to make an even more funky groove. The saxes join in on the weaving melody line and we're going to get soprano sax here and at, looking at the brief online credits, I guess this is Averoff Sr. Uh, they must have recorded this before he passed away uh, with his son, uh, Averoff Jr. on tenor. So Averoff Sr. gets the first solo on soprano uh, and then a perky rhythmic piano solo follows up uh, acoustic bass solo that works back into the opening groove uh, feel again and then a short recap of the melody uh, for a quick ending uh, so it's a uh, recording with lots of energy and enthusiasm very tight arrangements uh, especially uh, working the uh, saxes together here uh, and the trumpet on the tracks that it's on good solos a variety of instruments and different guests. Uh, yeah, it's a fun uh, Cuban jazz album. Yeah, it's appealing. It's um, intellectually satisfying too. It's a, it's, a, mm. it's fairly complicated uh, music actually. Yeah. It's um, but I but not it, that shouldn't put you off. I mean, no, no. I just said it's it's an easy listen, but it's just kind of yeah, rhythmically it, it complex. Feels, yeah, yeah, and yeah. it just feels good to hear it. Um, syncopated rhythms, a lot of variety on this record too. I especially love, you know, how I love jazz flute. That's one of my right things. Um, and I liked the, I liked this record. Um, I don't think I'm gonna put this in the collection, but I definitely enjoyed listening to it though. Yeah, yeah, I'd be yeah. Um, interested to uh, check out more of yeah, uh, absolutely his recordings in the future. Uh, Carlos Eberhoff Jr. Uh, sorry for your loss of your father, but uh, yeah. this comes as a nice tribute and uh, some nice companions to put music together as a tribute here. And for our final uh, sexual uh, exploration tonight, we're going to go into uh, <laughs> we're going to go into the a bit of the free realm uh, influence here, uh, a little bit. Uh, yeah. Not, uh, not too much, but... Uh, uh, I thought this was very appealing, this record. Oh, okay, it's yeah, really it's very interesting compelling. Here. Yeah. Um, and a great yeah. title uh, by uh, the great uh, saxophonist David Murray. Uh, actually, this album is recorded uh, with uh, equal credits uh, for uh, the trio. David Murray, uh, Brad Jones on bass, Hamid Drake on drums, uh, equal credit on uh, the album cover. Uh, and uh, this one just came out last week as well. Uh, Seriana Promethea on Intact Records uh, and uh, also features uh, David Murray's mainly a tenor sax player, but uh, he's got a bass clarinet on the first track here, which is uh, what sold me on this uh, recording. Yeah, yeah. No, right? Yeah. So uh, Murray Swing is actually you got yeah, me. <laughs> a uh, California native. Um, and uh, his in initial influences were more of uh, free jazz musicians like uh, Albert Eiler, Archie Shepp, uh, and uh, for musicians of his uh, generation, he was unique in not being 
really inspired by the style of uh, Coltrane, John Coltrane. Mm. Although he did record a tribute album <laughs> to Coltrane, which is kind of interesting. Uh, yeah. Although his style Inevitable, does, not, really. <laughs> does not reflect that. Uh, and uh, he sort of forged his way uh, through the jazz scene, uh, incorporates uh, lots of interesting elements uh, from previous you know prior to Coltrane like Coleman Hawkins Ben Webster with this wide vibrato uh, in his uh, style uh, but he's also done a lot of interesting recordings uh, he's recorded even with the Grateful Dead uh, and uh, he was also a founding member of the World Saxophone Quartet uh, with uh, let's see who would that be Oliver Lake uh, Julius Hemphill and uh, others uh, so he's sort of a uh, a big name in uh, modern sax uh, and um, recorded with other greats such as McCoy Tyner, Elvin Jones, uh, and, and many more. And um, so here we've got his uh, latest recording in a trio format. I think with uh, his kind of free expressive tendencies to, uh, he's got sort of a, an imagination and uh, exuberance in his solos that can't be contained and may not <laughs> may not adhere to some harmonic structures that other people might be thinking of. So uh, with just a bass to outline uh, the harmonic details, it gives him a lot more freedom. Um, you know, this goes back to say Sonny Rollins uh, recording without a piano uh, back in the fifties, and um, that works well. I thought this. Yeah, I thought this was a pretty impressive feat to just have one saxophone carrying right. an entire album with just right. bass and drums. I mean, it's, he certainly has the ideas to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, and so you get this free experience, but there's not everything is um, kept well in uh, form, I should say, uh, here, mm -hmm. and uh, the uh, tight rhythm section uh, keeps things very comprehensible in the pocket and Murray sort of, uh, even though he, he likes to get out there uh, with his uh, improvisations, uh, he stays grounded uh, throughout here. And uh, so some interesting choices of tunes and grooves here as well. So let's get into it. We start out with the title track, uh, Seriana Promethea. And mm. uh, this is the only tune that features a uh, bass clarinet and boy, yeah. it's a doozy. It uh, really is. Yeah. Bass clarinet and uh, bass set a really funky groove right from the beginning uh, with this answering uh, riffs they have going on between each other. Um, Murray amazingly gets a, a variety of tones out of bass clarinet from tenor sax like growls, which I've never heard before on bass clarinet. Yeah. Uh, squawks, uh, reed stopping percussive like effects, you know. Uh, uh, yeah. that are peppered into his uh, solo lines, but he can also get a really kind of rounded, pleasant uh, tone. Uh, you get a sense right away from uh, the first track that you never know what he's going to play next uh, in his improvisations, uh, sort of free flow, uh, creative ideas. Uh, Jones' bass sounds great on this track, uh, mixing up the bassline grooves underneath with tight uh, drum fills by Drake. Uh, this might be the funkiest bass clarinet I've ever heard in my life, but it's yeah. really cool. No, that the, I want to say about the bass, he really carries a lot of the material on this album, too. Mm -hmm. He sounds great throughout. Yeah, a the very bass creative soloing player. is amazing uh, because uh, he's able to do a lot of these um, very melodic solos, but 
when whenever he solos, the drums sort of uh, go just fade to the back and also allow him to carry most of the rhythmic pulse of the piece. So he's able to really keep a, a steady rhythmic feel while being melodically creative as well. Uh, so uh, Brad Jones, a very interesting bass player. Uh, yeah. Track two. Uh, I should mention all the compositions here are by David Murray uh, on this album. Uh, track two is Nectar, N-E-C-K-T-A-R. Uh, this one begins with a continuous syncopated bass interval uh, and heavy, even beat drumming. Uh, the bass notes go unchanged. It's just uh, kind of like a drone effect with this open. I don't know. I forgot what the if it's like a fourth or something, but uh, it just creates this kind of uh, constant... Uh, Harmonic it's like idea. A drone. Yeah. yeah, it's a drone. And then Murray comes in on tenor sax over that with a riff and starts improvising around it. Uh, Jones changes up the bass line to arpeggios and then walking bass lines before returning to the more static uh, kind of drone idea. Uh, Murray's in free, free range territory to weave lines uh, in uh, lots of harmonic directions. He pulls things back I in. Hurts. I thought it heard some Arab modes in yeah, there too. Yeah, there's some modes <laughs> going on there. Uh, when yeah. when the bass is outlining the chords, chordal things, he'll pull back in to be sort of limited in scope by the bass. That's kind of cool. Sort of gives him a grounding. And then when the bass hits that sort of static thing, he'll go out into the uh, outer realms <laughs> to explore a little yeah. bit more. I know when I put this album on, uh, when we got to this one, uh, my wife left the room and closed the door. So I knew <laughs> oh, things I were getting... I thought this was great. Yeah, I really my, liked it. Things were getting interesting at that point. Um, so uh, yeah, kind of exploratory and interesting. Uh, I, he, I like the kind of rock and roll. What, what you, what's that bass line? Dun, dun, dun. Dun, yeah. dun, that he does at the end. You hear that in a lot of those old rock songs. There's a name for that. I can't remember what it is. I don't know. A, a lot of the beats on this album mm. are rather rock influenced rather than jazz. There's actually only one swinging kind of rhythm. Uh, right. So, so they have a lot of uh, heavy rock feels uh, on here, interestingly. Um, <laughs> I think it's really funny that you wife leaves the room. Yeah. yeah she just left the room. certain albums. Yeah. yeah. Anything that, uh, you know, Gets off the script of uh, uh, soloing with. Uh, we, we should do a whole episode on like her reactions to the music yeah, that we listen to that we week. We have a very limited uh, selection. Of tunes, <laughs> and, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, anyway, when the uh, sax solo winds down, uh, Drake gets a, a long drum solo, uh, mixing up techniques, but always keeping a pulse uh, through the solo. And then Jones gets a very uh, modally. Uh, kind of jazz thing. Uh, he works off from the original uh, interval riff. It's very rhythmic and unique, uh, and that will sort of typify what goes on for the rest of the album in his solos. Uh, Murray returns for some riffing and improvisations for the end, uh, where the beat, interestingly, changes up into swing just for a little bit uh, in the final uh, section. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, then we've got... Uh, Track three, Metuka Shelley, Ballad for Adrian. Uh, this one begins with some very gnarly bass bowing. Hmm. Uh, it gets some kind of... I, I always I always worry when you hear something like this that it's dedicated to a woman. Like, yeah. what are they saying? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you know? 
um, yeah, some really eerie bass bowing that gets kind of like a guitar feedback type of sound. Uh, also, lots of bending pitch play. There's uh, a little uneasy feeling. Uh, it goes on for quite a while uh, and then ends down low. And then uh, Joan switches up to a plucked bass line. Uh, it becomes sort of a repetitive figure and sets the stage for drums and sax to enter with the main melody of the tune. It's a slow ballad feel. Uh, Murray is big and breathy with a wide uh, vibrato. Uh, you can pick up that Coleman Hawkins, Ben Webster influence of sound, uh, certainly not style uh, mm. uh, in this modern uh, kind of playing. Uh, he treats the melody rather gingerly in comparison here before launching into his improvisations. Uh, he has some harmonic flights of fancy, but keeps things mostly grounded into the outlines of the uh, bass harmonic sketches, uh, returning with the melody to the end and getting into the upper register. Another female dedication for four, Rainbows for Julia. Huh. Yeah, and by this melody, I think they really like Julia, actually. Yeah. This sounds really positive. <laughs> this tune is like a a melody of riffs that just get repeated while the harmony shifts underneath uh, uh, in mm. the bass. So uh, it's kind of catchy uh, in this repetition. Uh, Murray ornaments uh, these little riffs with lots of trills when they repeat uh, through it the second time. Uh, the beat is heavy and very rock influenced. Murray weaves in and around dismantling the rift I riff ideas and then he strangles the goose, as we like to say, in some places. <laughs> that sound. Yeah, getting up in the upper <laughs> register and, you know, just yeah. uh, squawking and screeching. Going to have goose for dinner after this one. Uh, Jones gets an extended bass solo here, too. As I said, he does this thing where he keeps the rhythmic groove, uh, also being quite melodic in his solo uh, Drake recognizes that he's doing a lot of the groove work, so he just lays off the drums into some uh, light cymbal work, uh, letting the bass carry most of the beat, which is very cool. Uh, Murray comes back in for that riffy melody uh, to finish it off uh, with another go-through. Uh, track five. I just want yeah, to say, before you get into track five, I'm still thinking of your your wife leaving the room. And uh, <laughs> I, I, of course, have had this experience myself. But really, I, I'm often asked, like, how can you listen to music that sounds like this, yeah, you know, yeah, whatever yeah. I happen to be listening to at the time? But what it really comes down to is your musical understanding. What is your musical yeah. vocabulary? Right. You know, if you understand what the 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 players are trying to do or what the vocabulary is then you'll listen to it even if you're not really enjoying it there's plenty of music right i i don't really like so much but that i'll listen to because i want to hear how it's gonna turn out you know what i mean right. um sort of like in a movie and i just want to just encourage listeners to really um go for that understanding i mentioned in an earlier episode the uh the book where the guy said you shouldn't really say i know what i like you should say i don't what I could like. And yeah. if you don't like something that's really complex, it might be because you don't really understand uh, what they're doing. And you should look into it and find out what it is. It is, after all, the American way <laughs> to it is. Uh, try to uh, understand it, what's going on, you know? You know, free jazz goes back, you know, almost 60 years now. Yeah. And this is not free jazz. Uh, it's. It, you know, Murray's this is actually kind of, pretty appealing, I thought. Yeah, you know, Murray's inspired. It had a lot of rock rhythms to it. That really caught me. 
Murray's inspired you know? by that freeness of jazz, free jazz, but he brings that spirit to something that's actually quite structured, uh, yeah. especially in what the rhythm players are doing. And he, he may go off on a tangent and, uh, you know, explore some you know, seemingly unrelated uh, kind of harmonic development. Uh, but he can do that here because you don't have a, a chordal instrument. You've just got the bass. And uh, I found that the structures and the beats are clearly outlined. So you never feel really like you're lost in the weeds with which what's going on. Uh, you get a clear map of the structure of the tune. And I find his, uh, you know, jazz is improvised music, but he is particularly uh, spontaneous and su consistently surprising with what kind yeah. of uh, creativity comes out. And he's just created a structure for himself where that can be expressed uh, very right. easily. And yeah, that's a, a very appealing. One of the things that appeals to me about this and about players like this is the spontaneity. I mean, you, you hear them, you can almost tell that they don't really have this next thing planned. That's just kind of... Yeah coming out and that they're in the zone sort yep. of you know where yeah it's almost like they're listening to themselves play and they're saying oh wow i wonder where this is coming from you know? yeah yeah uh, so that that's always exciting recording. when that happens yeah. yeah it's a very this is a very bursting uh with spontaneity in this album uh track five uh switching in the kitchen Ooh. Uh, this <laughs> one, title. Uh, this one's unique in this. Really, this was like a calypso feel to it. Uh, and yeah. when you have calypso, you're going to expect a very happy sounding major melody, and that's what you get here. Murray Sachs uh, soloing goes off into his usual free form lines after this happy melody, but he keeps the calypso spirit going with mostly happy major ideas, and uh, he returns to lots of. Uh, you know, rhythm, very rhythmic figures, uh, even in his uh, solo explorations. Jones has yeah. another long Happy, bass almost solo. I said loopy for this, you know, yeah, it's kinda, it kind of sounds like a little crazy. You know, yeah, it's, kinda, it's all that, you know, you know happy, happy way. Goes back to that Sonny Rollins, you know, you know, St. Thomas and all that. Uh, it's a, that spirit. Uh, hmm. Jones has another bass solo. Again, lots of melodic uh, ideas with rhythmic pulse. Uh, and Drake gets a drum solo here. Uh, he keeps the beat going through the whole, all of it um, with the bass drum uh, featuring uh, light, simple touches. And then Murray returns uh, for a melody recap and a little extra fun at the end. So just an upbeat, happy kind of uh, calypso feel. Uh, six, uh, Anita et Anita. Uh, first, <laughs> with two ends, yeah. Yeah, Anita is one end, the second one with two. Uh, this one's like a longing type melody uh, set to an even beat at first, but the beat then doubles up and gets a swing feel for a different section uh, that contrasts and then changes back to the uh, original feel. Uh, Murray's solos here are more tame, uh, focusing more on phrasing and... Uh, but they do become more animated in the uh, swinging section uh, that uh, doubles up in the middle. Uh, they go through the melody uh, once more, uh, straight up uh, a little bit to uh, finish up the tune. Uh, then we're going to get a couple interesting ones. Uh, track seven, If You Want Me To Stay. Uh, this one uh, begins with a pulsing bass line that gets the tune uh, going with a rock feel. The right. melody is I, bluesy. I thought, I thought so. 
and uh, Murray blows it with a tight articulation. Then he mixes up uh, a lot of harmonically adventurous lines with more R&B rooted bluesy licks uh, that match the groove of this tune. Uh, Jones has another rhythmically uh, interesting bass solo, and then uh, Murray comes back for the melody, keeps things rhythmic and bluesy to the end. Uh, so I think with Murray, you get not only jazz, but you get a lot of other like R&B, gospel, all kinds of black music influences uh, into his style, and that reflects in the feels that are chosen for the tunes. It's not, and this is not swing jazz uh it's like per a pop se. tune, really. Yeah, pop or tunes, rock, the rock kind of yeah. vibe to it, yeah. And the last one, uh, Am Gon' Get Some. <laughs> <laughs> That's Am, A-M-G-O-N-E-G-E-T-S-O-M-E. Am Gon' Get Some. Uh, this one is really cool. Uh, another a real uh, kind of R&B thing. Uh, it's got a scooping bluesy sax lick with a low honk that's in that line. Uh that forms the focus of the melody for this tune. Uh, this one, surprisingly, it has a swing feel in contrast to most of the straight and rocky beats of the previous tunes. Uh, Jones walks the bass in a swing style. Uh, Drake's got the riding cymbal going for that swing feeling too. Under Murray's explorations uh, that go into his solo. Uh, Jones here gets a more phrased type of bass solo it it's sort of set into little stanzas uh, where he takes breaks between them. Uh, Drake also gets a drum solo uh, in this one uh, before Murray returns with that scooping uh, riff lick and a short uh, reprise of the melody uh, to end it. Uh, so uh, if you like your sax with a little more adventure and freestyle, uh, this will be a good one uh, for you. Uh, Murray's constantly inventive. Uh, exploring different regions, but the uh, bass and drums keep things uh, tight uh, as far as structure goes, and the the grooves in here are very uh, rock R and B uh, influenced. Uh, Murray's an inspired, you know, player, as I said, but everything locks together uh, in the way these tunes uh, fit together. There's a, a nice variety of feels and original melodies. They all seem sort of uh, familiar in a way, uh, even though this is all his original uh, work here. So, yeah, a lot of variety. Uh, you know, everyone wants to have a varied sax life, and you're going to get it in this program. Hmm. Uh, different styles, different players. We've got uh, everything from alto, tenor, uh, with different tones, bass, clarinet, soprano sax flute what more could you want i really dug the ideas and sounds on the album um all the instruments brought out rarely heard sounds from their instruments which i thought was really cool these kind of mm. and the grooves were all interesting and enjoyable and especially for me the bass playing well the saxophone playing was interesting throughout but the bass playing too was a mm. he was sort of the other soloist i guess yeah yeah very interesting. and he gets this rich well. sound especially in the low end some cool grooves I, I really enjoyed listening to him a lot. Um, I When I was listening to this, I was thinking it was just too much hearing a saxophone with, alone with bass and drums for an entire album. I really liked it, but I was like, yeah, I don't know if I'll listen to this too often. But then hearing you talking about it now is making me kind of want to hear it again. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I will go for it. I don't know. You know? But it was certainly enjoyable. I liked it a lot. I just yeah. thought it was like 
too too much of the uh the trio there the, the sax trio is kind of an odd thing for me yeah i i feel like it's probably the the format that makes him feel most free uh yeah you know, maybe that's some, it if you got a piano the, or the, a chord. the whole idea of freedom of course inspires me and jazz yeah jazz being the american music it's like a free kind of music you right. know so it's really you know perfect you for a, us really a piano or a guitar you know you know he's gonna play like some you know, six chord or nine chord, and then suddenly yeah, they're you're going to be worried. You. Oh, he's limiting what oh, I can play. Yeah. You know, it's this gonna... <laughs> is not going to fit over that. He's just got you know <laughs> one bass note, or you know some of the intervals that he plays. You sort of, you know, you right. a lot more possibilities. And I think Murray is the kind of player who, you know, you never know what direction he's going to go next, and uh, he will resolve it and bring it back into uh, you know a kind of a complete statement. But if he doesn't have to worry about what an, another kind of uh, voice is going to constrain that with. Uh, he, he sort of shines in his uh, explorations. So, yeah, I, I thought it was pretty cool and groovy and uh, somebody with a different concept. So, yeah, uh, lots of contrast in all the saxes uh, here and uh, hope you all enjoy. Lots of good recordings. sax. Yeah. I got a huge yeah. sax list, and uh, the only thing I have, the only thing I get more of than great sax, is piano. And uh, so, <laughs> since you said uh, we, we should do piano, piano next, next week, the piano list we're is gonna huge. We're going to do piano because I've got some piano coming too. I've got a long piano list as well. Yeah, the piano list is mm. huge, so we'll just break out. Uh, of course, there's one that I've been uh, really uh, wanting to get out since it's just come out, and that's the new uh, uh, Dave Kikoski. Uh, opus 5 yeah. recording but I've got a couple other nice ones to throw in with that and so. I've got a recording you'll absolutely absolutely want to hear is um, oh. Stephen Osborne's recent oh. uh, Rachmaninoff recording you know because I know you like him and I know you liked his earlier yeah. Rachmaninoff recordings so absolutely do that, that sounds one. wonderful yeah that's going to be good alright and some other surprises too oh. yeah so we look forward yeah. to some uh, keyboard delights uh, next week yeah and uh, then eventually we'll get to a trumpet. I've got a lot of uh, large ensemble recordings too, so maybe we could get an orchestral and big band kind of thing coming up. I'm going to uh, put this out too. there. I got a trumpet and trumpet concerto CD uh, that I'm waiting for. You know, from a certain company that I order from. They haven't yet. I ordered it May 11th because another. CD on the list hasn't they haven't arrived yet so I'm still waiting for this trumpet oh. so I keep delaying the trumpet episode because I want to get, get that one in it because otherwise yeah. I won't have any trumpet works but it won't matter well if, if it comes down to it I'll listen to it on Deezer but huh. I wanted to have this one alright we'll have trumpet coming soon too uh, we'll I've have got it soon a lot of other possibilities mm -hmm. but uh, next week will be piano for sure so stay tuned yeah. uh that will be episode uh, 66. This has been episode 65 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. Uh, please, again, remember you can check out all these links to the music uh, here on Deezer, Apple Music, uh, or uh, Spotify if you like. But you can get everything in one place on uh, Deezer. And that's the only place where we put the full playlist up uh, early. So I'll have uh, next week's piano recordings up tomorrow at some time uh, on Deezer if you want to listen to e them. E except for the Osborne Rachmaninoff, which is on Hyperion. Hyperion, yeah. So <laughs> They're doing it to us again. <laughs> no streaming for Hyperion, yes. Well, anyway, you get five of six and uh, yeah. you can check out uh, 
the uh, Hyperion samples uh, later in the week and decide if it's worth uh, your. Or you can just buy the cash. album now and yeah. uh, buy it ahead of trust. It's going to be good. I'm sure Can't it is because I Stephen love Stephen Osborne's Osborne, playing. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, yeah. Uh, please do uh, like and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. Uh, check out our Facebook page for additional uh, clips. Uh, you want to see that Doug Webb clip for sure. Uh, yeah, that's a, great. <laughs> yeah. Leave a comment if you like uh, over there. Uh, if you want to contact us directly, as we said, uh, please shoot us an email at adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at uh, Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Please do write. Yeah, do write ahead, to say, us. I'm sorry, say the address again. Adultmusicpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, check that out. We'd like to hear from you. And uh, finally, before we sign off, thanks as always to Fast Signs. Yeah. Staten Island for our glowing neon logo, which got all those new Samsung uh, listeners uh, just to click on. If only once. Uh. If only once. <laughs> we hope we hope to keep you all, but hope we'll keep see. some of them on. Yeah. So, I think I think we turned him on to uh, Knob Creek uh, Bourbon now. He's uh, going to the liquor store now. Maybe it's because he's listening to us too much. <laughs> yeah, he's listening to us too much. Bad influence. But I noticed that, um, well, I had the same problem last time I was in New York. I couldn't find the uh, single barrel reserve. They yeah, that's the, the one we drink one. here. On the... so, so it might be might be only sold in Japan, which happens with a lot of whiskeys. Uh, they're marketed, mm -hmm. you know, specifically for different regions in different variations. So, yeah, Japan's a funny. Th that would be worth doing a podcast on, really. You know, <laughs> get another another. Yeah, podcast. I could do it all. Yeah, just uh, drinking boo podcast. booze sold in yeah. Japan because it's different than the rest <laughs> of the world. They kind of get special things here from American like uh, makers. Does how does that happen? I don't know, but if there's <laughs> anything else other than. Uh, music that I've spent a lot of my life on. It's been booze, so we could do a booze podcast, <laughs> too, yeah, for sure. There, I, I couldn't do a booze. I'm not a specialist by any means, so I don't well, know. Yeah. I do like a good uh, bourbon or cognac brandy when I have one, though. I haven't drank any cognac lately. See, it's all gotten too expensive. I can't. Uh, yeah. I, so I, I went down to the bourbon now. Yeah, it's all getting expensive. Which isn't too expensive, so I drink you know the the Knob Creek is it's pricey for bourbon, but it's not. Yeah, you know, not, anything from a grape outrageous. can go into the thousands of dollars. You know, yeah, yeah. You, but corn. So how much are you going to get for corn? Come on, you're not going to get much for corn. No. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's in everything. Thanks for sticking with us to the end, and uh, we'll see you again for episode sixty-six next week. Mm -hmm.